ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, rockers and rollers of all ages, good evening, good morning, good day, and good night to you, wherever you are in the world. We are straight out the fridge. My name is Chris Weeks, and I'm joined by... J Osborne. I thought you were doing it like um, <laughs> like you had a stammer. No, 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 J Osborne. <laughs> That's what I thought J- was happening. J uh, Osborne. Nice. Um, and someone else. Who is it? Tomek Savinsky. <laughs> Hello, gentlemen. How are you both? Hey, mate. Very good. Yeah, it's good. It's good here, isn't it? It's good here, isn't it? Uh, just to give some context, Tomek is suddenly, suddenly, is. Uh, <laughs> it's because you're so close together. That's the alarming yeah, thing. It, and it looks like you're going into kiss every time that you <laughs> both speak on the mic. Um, they're both Tomek, in the same room. Oh, my God, <laughs> we do. It really does. It's like, yeah, oh, my God. I'm sorry about that. No, it's I fine. what to do to fix that. It's, it's off-putting, but not, not in the worst possible way, well, so that's good. The re... The reason I'm here with Jay is because... Why are you in my apartment? Well, because <laughs> I said to you the other day, I was like, oh, there's so much to talk about with song songwriting. What? Yeah. How? Where do we Where do we start? I'm just going to come around your house and then <laughs> let Chris talk. Right. So have you done a lot of research? Yeah, I've done some. Have you done it's a lot so of research? Broad. Yeah, I've it's done so some. Broad. It's so broad, this subject. It's so broad. It's so broad. It's so broad. <laughs> it's so broad. That stammer again. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah, but that, I just I panicked with research because you could spend a good month re- researching this. Right. But and uh, you haven't spent. You that decided time. to be like, ah, I just have to do a little bit. It's fine. Nah. Great. Do that didn't bit. explain why you're in Jay's flat. Just to be clear, that explained your woes. Well, I want him. I want the to subject hold my matter hand while oh. I do it. God. You know, last week he was on about having a director in the room. <laughs> that is literally it, isn't it? He doesn't feel comfortable unless there's someone there telling him what to do and what to say and how to say it. Look, Willie Weeks, this is week number six. Last week was oh, Artist Week, Rosetta, cool. uh, Rosetta Tharp. And this week is Topic Week. And it was your week, Mr. Fur Christopher, Willie Weeks. <laughs> so tell everyone and me and this man here... Uh, what we are doing this week. This is exciting. And it's exciting to have it come back to be my choice, I have to say, because I know I, I sort of forced Elvis on as, uh, as it were, in the very first week. And then by my absence, it was the drums. But no, this was absolutely my pick. Uh, and I want to talk about songwriting and songwriters in the world of rock and roll. And as Tomek says, it's a big... A big subject and so i think what we have to do is keep it as um as specific as we possibly can it's very easy to be sort of to, uh, washy and um and you know and to try and encompass everything that's not something that we're able to do in the in, in the, the short time that we are together with our listeners so gentlemen are you happy if i sort of lead us through um, oh yeah why do you say it like that oh tommy do you want to lead it no <laughs> All I right. mean, yeah. Do you I know can what? Do... If you're going to be like that, yeah. you stand at the front of the class and take it. No, he's right. Oh, God. All right, kick us off, Tom. That's worse, isn't it? Remember so standing on. in front of the class and not having done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> come on, mate. How are we starting? Uh, should we... Uh, I mean, right, I really struggled this week with oh, my... God. With my timeline. And... Uh, oh, don't you say that every week? <laughs> yeah, I do. But this week, I really did. Because where do you start? Anyway, 
without further ado, let's have Tom X Timeline. Tom X Timeline. Rock and roll songs were written and people like them. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Is that actually it? Yeah, that's all I've all I've done. <laughs> I'm absolutely flabbergasted. Well, I, kept I kept it broad. Uh, I'm not lying, am I? I? Mean, you have. I have said to you every week that it's too short. It's too <laughs> sorry. It's too long. Yeah. He's taken. I'll note, take mate. a note. I'll take a note. You certainly yeah, but will. That's taking the piss, isn't it? Really. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I've summed it all up. They've been written, and people like them. Well. I Where mean, we go from there? I'm baffled by that. All right, all right. Let's see what I found. Let's see what I found. Tom X Timeline. Tom X Timeline. The 1940s. Rock and roll songwriting stems from at least seven styles of music. Blues, country, rockabilly or bluegrass, gospel, boogie-woogie, jazz and rhythm and blues. Blues form is a cyclic musical form in which a repeating progression of chords mirrors the call and response scheme commonly found in African and African-American music. Music is always influenced by its listener and or scene. Post-World War II saw smaller jazz music groups due to servicemen being called up, harsher taxes and rationing, and the impracticality of touring a large band. The 1950s. Just like clothes, food, and other forms of art, chord progressions have fashions and or trends. The 50s chord progression has also been called the heart and soul chords or the doo-wop progression. It features chords one, six, four, five. For example, C, A minor, F, G. The mid to late 50s saw more teenagers wanting to dance faster with more energy and more drive. For speed and ease, chord six, or A minor, was dropped in lots of jump blue songs. This allowed music to have easier improvisations, more call and response for audiences, and catchier melodies. 1951. Songwriting duo Lieber and Stoller write That's What The Good Book Says for Robbins, later becoming The Coasters. It blends boogie-woogie, doo-wop, gospel, harmonies, and swing. 1952. Their first major hit is with Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog. Like majority of jazz songs, being new arrangements of traditional song, here, the boys reconstruct an old blues melody for a modern ear. 1953. Rock Around the Clock is written by Friedman and Myers. It is based on popular classical instrumental of the day called The Syncopated Clock, written by Leroy Anderson. 1954. The third single that Lieber and Stoller wrote, produced and released on Spark label, was The Robbins's Riot in Cell Block Number 9. The inspiration was Gangbusters, a radio program that Lieber had heard in the 40s. Still 1954. Arthur Crudup's That's Alright Mama is released by Elvis Presley. The swing is thrown out of the door and is rearranged for bass, guitar and voice. So, as I said, rock and roll songs were written and people liked them. I honestly preferred the first one. I, th- I knew you would. I yeah. knew you'd say that. <clears throat> I, I edited uh, that, and I preferred the first one. Yeah. Well, why did you kick off so much then? I would. We just left it there. I thought we were going to carry on, but you said about doing it. Yeah, yeah you insisted. Yeah. I would have stopped. I think we should still cut it. <laughs> <laughs> just cut it. Just Brilliant. cut it. Cut the um, whole concept of the thing.
So um, that's go on. a pretty good place to start, Willie. It is. I think. I'm really pleased that Tomek talked about some of those songs uh, in particular because yeah. in my own m- m- notes and research, I've not focused so much on songs that have been written for other artists or that other artists have sort of picked up. So this is where we sort of like we started with Elvis and we sort of leave Elvis at this point because Elvis wasn't really a writer. He was a performer mm. of other people's songs. I'm The thing that has always fascinated me is the songwriter who performs their own song. So the singer songwriter. And that really is something that it, it did exist before the rock and roll era, but it really takes on another life of its own. Um, once the fifties really kick in before we do that, what I'd like to talk about just briefly, boys, is um, before we get onto the lyrics and stuff like that and individual songs, talk about the form of songs. OK, so Tomic briefly mentioned there yeah. um, the, the 50s style, uh, the 1645, right, Tomek? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what we should do is and we should be very clear, I think, for our listeners who perhaps aren't um, familiar with that sort of numbering system uh it refers to chords within uh, chords and the order in which they come in the song. So the chord progression, the chord sequence, and the numbers refer to the note on the scale. So if you imagine do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, it's um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and eight is the one starting again. So in that instance, Tomic was talking which about... Which is the octave. I like that you did that all on one note as well, which is the octave. How about that? Very good. Spice things up a bit. Which eh? is the octave. Tiff. There you go. Lovely. We're really And Tom X here. <laughs> <laughs> Tom X always, yeah, putting a little bit yeah. of something in there. Very you know nice, mate. You can smell in 10 minutes before oh, he gets it. So that's the... just the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, carry on. Oh, thanks, mate. But yeah, so um, <laughs> I'd, what I'd like to talk about just briefly is the... Tom X talked about the, the 50s progression. What we should also talk about is the 12-bar blues progression. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't really talk about that. Because it's absolutely fundamental to rock and roll. and vital. Before we even get there, we should talk about, and you know, you boys know I love talking about jazz and the the previous era of popular music, and it it really was jazz that was popular music that was there before. The core progression that sort of dominated jazz was the 2-5-1, which is Ah. very, very similar to uh, a 4-5-1, so as in an F to a G to a C, uh, but it's using the second chord, which is a minor chord going to the five, which is the dominant, and then back to the main, uh, the tonic chord, the number one chord. And you hear that in songs like uh, in Fly Me to the Moon, when it goes, in other words, I love you. That's a two, five, one progression. And that's what happens all over jazz. And it incorporates the minor chord in it as a fundamental part of it. Something that shifts when you get to the 12 bar is there are no minor chords involved. So the 12 bar blues goes between the one chord, the four chord and the five chord, all major chords. And which uh, is funny, really, isn't it? Considering that, like, you think of the stereotypical blues as being very sad, you do very melancholy, and you would you would kind of think that there would be a minor chord in there, but there's not. Isn't that interesting? And you're absolutely yeah. right. It's one of those things where it's almost as though the blues is not so much a uh, as in the style of music is not so much about wallowing in 
darkness and in grief and in these negative emotions. It's in sort of still celebrating them and still sort of exorcising them through this this more majory energy. Yeah, it's it's more about owning them. And also, I think that's where the sevenths come in to really make a difference. Well, definitely. So it doesn't sound... Yeah, it doesn't sound so, hey, look at us. We've, you know, we're, we're very happy. Let's do all these major chords. There's these sevenths that are really twisting these major chords up and making them in some ways a lot more effective than if they'd used just a standard minor chord. You're, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's it's the classic thing that we talk about in music of um, suspension and then resolution. So all of these chords the five chord in particular, it's the Amen progression. It's chord is when it goes from the five back to the one. It's the suspension, Amen, and it comes back to that resolution where the chord resolves itself back on the one. And the 12 bar blues going between the one, the four, and the five is a very simple, technically speaking, a very simple progression, but it tells its own story because it has this constant sense of suspense and of resolution as well. And it, it's one of those things where rock and roll really exists on these these sort of, these frameworks, relatively straightforward frameworks that are then, that, that are so strong and so solid that other things can come out of it. And it's an interesting thing that when you compare it to jazz, where the framework is yeah, very, very opposite, complex. isn't it? It's it really is. opposite, yeah. It's like, it's like jazz has this complex skeleton that everything hangs off of and everything that hangs off of that complex skeleton is what it is whereas with rock and roll it's kind of like they've gone okay let's take that and let's turn that on its head and let's make the skeleton a very simple skeleton and like you just said everything else that comes with it um like the vocals the melody lines like the tonality of the uh, of the guitar the instruments they use um all of that comes into play and that's what makes that genre the genre that we are speaking about specifically in every episode that's what makes rock and roll um rock and roll that's it i think it's interesting as well um (coughs) with jazz music uh the more research i do um it seems to be this massive shift and it probably came with the teenager and post-war um and the way that people listen to jazz this the, the split was it either became or develop more blues and rhythm and blues and then rock yeah. and roll, or it stayed in jazz, big band. And then, because, you know, in the 50s, you've also got Miles Davis as well as Chuck Berry. So from the nutshell of jazz, you've, you've got two completely different starts. Well, you know, Miles Davis is more bebop. But, um, you know, that sort of like, what, what do the people want? And it's clear that people wanted a nice beat to dance to and to have fun and then there was more the intellectual side of jazz this is what i always find interesting as well because i love both genres yeah and i have a need for both of them but clearly there was this big split that people wanted you know rock and roll or jazz and it went down its other avenue i think you're right and it's really fascinating that the two are so different and almost Mm. by design they're so different um, there's a wonderful quote, which is by a chap called Philip Ennis, who wrote a book called The Seventh Stream, The Emergence of Rock and Roll in American Popular Culture, uh, or Popular Music, rather. And he said that there were two rules of thumb in the music industry. What is popular now, do the same. And whatever is popular now, do the opposite. 
And that really applies to jazz and to rock and roll, because you imagine rock and roll with this framework. Everyone does the same thing and they go from that point. And you imagine the jazz musicians looking at rock and roll. They look at it. Everyone's doing it. We're going to do exactly the opposite of that. And again, it, it's it's that constant thing that we that I talk about all the time, which is that every subsequent generation is essentially rebelling against the previous one and never, never, never more so than in rock and roll. But what Jay's saying is absolutely spot on. It's it's like rock and roll is, is very often, for people who don't understand the genre, who aren't fans, they'll dismiss it as something simplistic, repetitive, and um, and just something that's not particularly interesting because it is, generally speaking, it's sort of like three quarters of the songs are 12-bar blues progressions or variations thereupon. But the thing is that there it is so much more than just that. And I think the perfect example is something that we've talked about before. Look at a Little Richard song and then look at Pat Boone covering a Little Richard song. And yeah. there you have it straight exactly. away. We've said and, exactly that before. And the thing is as well, we know as songwriters, that's that's what we do. Um, in our band, uh, we write all of our own songs, rock and roll songs. Yeah. And I know from being in indie and pop and, you know, rock 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 bands when i was um when i was a lot younger the writing those songs i would say was difficult and if someone at the time said to me um you know i'll write a rock and roll song i'd be like well that's easy it's just one four five chord i'll just do a, an a a d and an e and then mm -hmm. just make up a bluesy melody over the top and you kind of think yeah that's fine but actually when it comes down to it it's actually harder to do that because you're taking something that in some respects in 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 this in this instant quarterly is very simple and you're trying to do something different with it you know it's it's like saying to someone right here you have um you have a hundred ingredients for a cake make me a cake now your cake you can make lots of different types of cake out of that it's going to be easy to make lots of different types of cake but then if I turn around and say to you, okay, you're going to make a cake, but you've only got three ingredients, then you're going to go, okay, this is going to be a lot harder. What am I going to, I'm going to have to think outside the box. It's not necessarily just adding more of this ingredient or less of this one. It's about how can I, how can I bake it longer? Can I bake it uh, in this kind of way, that kind of way, in this kind you know, you, you have to be a lot more, in a sense, experimental and a lot more sort of clever with what you're doing. And that's where as a songwriter, I know it has improved me a lot personally because you have to start thinking of other things that you can do to make that basic skeleton, as I said earlier, a lot more interesting. You're absolutely right. And the, the, what that instantly made me think of was the the sort of eventual progression that jazz went on as time went on and it found its way into free jazz. So if you think of rock and roll as this very, very... Uh, compacted uh, framework of being one four fives generally speaking 12 bar blues progression free jazz is the opposite where anything goes and you're not you're not um, restricted in that way and you're absolutely right and I've got a quote here in fact which sort of sums up what you were saying there um, young Professor Osborne it's by a chap called Robert mm -hmm. Christgau from 1992 and he says uh, repetition without tedium is the backbone of rock and roll and that's exactly it because they are repeating yeah. the same thing uh, in their own way. And it has to be fresh and new and interesting, even though they're doing the same thing. If it's not, you could smell it a mile away. Yeah. And that's the thing, like going back to like me, me and Willie 
for, for those who don't know, we write a lot together. We, we write uh, most of the stuff for the band and our kind of vocal ranges are within like the key of A and the key of E. That's where we sit quite comfortably. And you kind of think, oh, that's great. You know where you're going, where's best for your voice to sit. But then you're also then like making it more difficult for you because then you're going, okay, great. So I've got one, four, five in A a d e or one four five in e which is e a b and you're kind of then going oh okay how can we then make this different and it's very difficult to sit there and try and write something that doesn't end up turning out like 20 flight rock or matchbox or blue suede shoes or all shook up you know you you end up sort of trying to think to yourself how can i take this key and this chord progression that has been used thousand upon thousands of times and make this original and that as a songwriter i think is an amazing challenge yeah absolutely uh, well, go on tommy uh, i was just gonna say um we actually played a gig the other night didn't we boys we oh, did we did we My were God. we were a bit rusty does, but we did it does does anyone feel like really naughty about even talking about yeah that? i know it was I, allowed I, it was I feel all a bit allowed. guilty about it though as well because like oh, no I one's didn't. playing gigs no one's playing gigs though but well, very few people say, are i yeah, mean but we are yeah, yeah. Well, we Except did one. Obviously. Um, well, yeah. So it was a bit of a brag, but also um, <laughs> we on. The, so it was just a, it was just a pub gig. If it wasn't, if coronavirus wasn't a thing, this would just be one of those gigs. It was a Friday night standard sort of set list. Um, but we put that would be the day on the list, didn't we? We did. And I, I, there's something about that song that I just find so difficult to play because it it is the same structure, but it's it sits in chord four. Ah, uh, well. The, yeah, Start I want to talk on. about that'll be the day further down the line. Bef before, oh, okay. before we do move on, gents, I want to sort of go back to the whole timeline aspect of it. Tomek's timeline? No, 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 not that. Oh, not the God. horrendous timeline. But <laughs> I want to, I, I want to, um, I want to sort of go back before we dive even more into the like method of the songs and like the chords and the notes and all this kind of thing. I wanted to discuss a little bit more about like the origins of this kind of songwriting sure because like f for me researching this um i you know normally for a, t a topic week i put together my own little timeline and i have got one um oh. but i wanted us to sort of come to the subject in a more organic natural kind of light if nice. you will so you stopped um, us dead and then we're like let's talk about this yeah pretty much perfect because we've surpassed it by now <laughs> um in fact no um, i did want to go back as well yeah, no, it's it's kind of like, um, because you think about this, you know, anything that was sort of pre-late, late 19th century, mm -hmm. like we're, we're thinking it's very classical and stuff. That's when a lot of these kind of, you know, jazz started to slightly, slightly make an appearance in certain ways, but it was the early 20s and stuff. And I wanted to ask you guys, where do you think that kind of, really started to become in its own and started to um started to really bloom as an industry are you talking about Ooh. jazz or about <clears throat> rock no, and roll just or... the idea of like songwriting as a commercial thing as a commercial thing well that that is a different story because we're going back to to people like cole porter and rogers and hart and people who were writing songs for a living for other artists completely separate from uh actually performing them whether they were performers or not you know and uh, say the gershwins and people like that 
but if we i mean so it comes out of that sort of tradition of um of either being a composer so if you go way back to to salzburg and mozart and people like that who were mm. uh, working on commissions and working at royal courts and 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 that sort of thing it then moves its way onwards and these skills get passed down and eventually i suppose it becomes a profession for less um well not not less not less um what am i trying to say less upper class educated people at all well i'll, I'll give you Three words, Willie, that will make you go, oh, yeah. Oh, go yeah. on. I get it now. Tin Pan Alley. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, for me, is when I was researching this. Like, when was the point where those sort of, like, one-on-one -on -one commissions and that classical type of um, composition sort of was not put aside, but but the idea of the commercial song started to come out. Um, and every result I got was Timpan Alley. And I thought that was a really, really good subject to do like a little bit of a timeline on. Lovely. Um, and we never got there organically because I ended up just saying it. But uh, <laughs> here uh, is. No, it's not a here oh, is. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> when. Nope. Try, oh. <laughs> try again. How about a bit of. <laughs> is that better? I'm just going to play it. So what is Timpan Alley? A location or a genre? Well, it's both actually. Timpan Alley is a genre of American popular music that appeared in the late 19th century from the American song publishing industry centered in New York City. The genre, Timpan Alley, took its name from the street on which the songwriters and composers were based, 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue in the Flower District and Broadway. In the early 20th century, the Timpan Alley as we know it and call it arrived in about 1885, although some say it started during the 1930s at the beginning of the Great Depression, when radio, film and phonographs were becoming even more popular. Nevertheless, Timpan Alley became a driving force of American popular music and continued into the 1950s when a lot of the earliest styles of music were starting to be upstaged by the uprise of rock and roll. Timpan Alley gets its name from the sound of numerous cheap upright pianos being furiously pounded by the so-called song pluggers, who wrote, composed and demonstrated their newly written tunes to various publishers in the hope of selling them for future royalty paychecks or just an upfront flat fee. The term Timpan was also used as a slang for a decrepit piano. Timpan was a writing haven for the commercial music songwriters of the day, writing in various popular genres, including ballads, dance music, and vaudeville. And the name Timpan Alley eventually became synonymous with American popular music in general. A lot of music composers and publishers from Timpan Alley were Jewish Eastern Europeans, the most famous of them being Irvin Berlin. And other famous songwriters to come out of Timpan include George Gershwin, Harry Warren, Vincent Humans, and Al Sherman. The most profitable commercial product of Timpan Alley was sheet music for home consumption and playing. Hundreds upon hundreds of songwriters, lyricists, and performers labored away day after day, night after night to produce music to meet that high demand. 
Timpan Alley persisted into the 60s until new and upcoming artists like Bob Dylan helped establish a new songwriting norm. The use for Timpan eventually became less and less, and with the added ongoing growth of film, TV and radio, eventually, and understandably, became redundant as new, individual and reformed published houses became the standard. Timpan Alley is gone, Bob Dylan proclaimed in 1985. I put an end to it. People can record their own songs now. The rebelliousness well, of it. Isn't that amazing? You know, I, I've been to New York and there is go. still an element of this hear my song, hear my song, here's my CD element and i love to think that's what it was you know people literally like fighting for i mean there is and this and this still is that i think that is around the world anyway like i remember going back to when i was saying about those bands i was in years ago you know we did the whole like let's write songs let's go into a studio record the songs and then print out like 200 cds and then email them off with a really lovely cover letter to to Decca, to Virgin, to Capital, to Dida, you know, and you send them off, and every time you put one of them in the, in the, in the post box, you kind of think to yourself, oh, this could be it, and yeah. then you realise after like four months, you don't get a reply back for one, yeah. and you go, mm. oh, okay, that was just a big waste mm. of money, but like, yeah, no, I definitely think there is that kind of, I think it just changed from being this kind of, I kind of imagine it as this like college campus of these crazy rough suited glasses wearing like musos who could just get up and just plunk away at these pianos all night long creating something and then presenting it to someone who goes yes no 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 that sounds great that sounds crap oh this is definitely something that could be something you know and just hoping and uh, and praying that something's gonna you know something's gonna click in one of the publishers ears and just just so brutal the way to, to live your life like that like constantly on showcase in a way i would find it hard yeah and the competition yeah. as well oh I mean, yeah gosh i mean yeah I, I i personally i would find it tough you know like constantly being under pressure you know once you get your hit you've got to think about your next one and your, your next one and then you know the, the amount of failure that will come so you get your one hit every 50 tracks would you say even if you are if that pretty good you know even if you are fairly well known within the game you know there's still like 49 tracks of not quite good enough or you know no oh, yeah, you've got definitely. to do it you know god it's like it's almost like gambling waiting for that win you know like sort of like especially when i mean we know yeah. it's like anyway especially like when you put so much time and love into um into a song or some music and then you finish it and then you think this is it this is the one and then you hand it to someone and they say nope don't like that and you're like okay mm. well where, where do i go now but but for me tim pan alley is kind of like the beginnings and I'm not saying that New York Tim Pan Alley was, was the, um, was the only place that did this in the world because there quite possibly could have been other places. But for us, for the majority of musicians, Tim Pan Alley in New York is kind of the most famous example of that. Yeah. Um. But I think this is the moment where, um, songwriting started to really become more of like like a business in a sense yeah, mm. and it's where a lot of people um who were predominantly songwriters were kind of like cutting their teeth you know like like i said in the thing you know Irvin berlin and gershwin and stuff like they went on to create some of um the most recognizable and 
like some of the most genius music within theater uh for example and they would probably have never have done that unless they had gone through that kind of um training camp of oh, yeah. of, of of having to do it you know and um and i just think it's a really good way of um looking at music the commercial music because we know that a lot of rock and roll you know i don't know the percentages but off off the top of my head i would probably say 75 to 80 percent of rock and roll music from 1950 to 1965 was probably written by a songwriter not the musician artist or band and i just think this is kind of the beginning of that as i said in the thing in the timeline um they Tim Pan Alley was something that kind of moved with the times as well. It had to. It had to kind of move with the trends and the uh, the things that were popular at the time. Um, and so when the sort of late 40s started coming about with the, uh, with the big band uh, and the rhythm and blues and then the 50s uh, with the rock and roll and rockabilly and everything else, that had to go with it. Um, but I think that's when it started to deteriorate, and when it did finish being Tim Panali that we think that we think of, a lot of these uh, publishers ended up becoming separate uh, record labels or separate publishing houses and things like that. Um, but the life of the songwriter, as we know it, still went on, just not in that kind of um, big melting pot in one place kind of way, and. I'm just intrigued to think, I suppose the question I'm asking is, do you think those songwriters, do you think they're losing out not being in that environment? Because I know personally as a songwriter, I would love to just spend a bit of time in that environment to see if there were things I could learn, if there was a certain way of of composing and, and living and, and creating in that environment that you couldn't get from, say, doing it in your own space or with an individual publishing house uh, publishing house um what, what do you boys think do you, do you think that certain songwriters would be missing out now that's gone or do you think it's an advantage or do you think it's a mix i mean what do you think i yeah i think it depends is the whole do you work better working from home or do you work better in an office and personally i would work better with other people in that in that instance i think i bounce off other people okay, yeah. and i find myself must to be more of an arranger slash fixer of songs so i love the tracks you boys write and then i can sort of come in and go oh what about this can we try this can we try that you know sort of so hurry are you saying that you love the songs that we write but you like to come in and fix them yeah basically did you hear that willie yeah yeah Time to i let love to go that. probably it's sort it? of my thing i love <laughs> i love doing it um, yeah, we're letting you go mate oh am i gone right bro okay thanks Bye. for that clonk that's the door um what do you think willie <laughs> go on. yeah uh no i absolutely agree i think that people it's it's such a difficult thing to have to, to be entirely under your own steam and trying to finish things like that's always been my experience if i've not got a deadline bearing down on me i will often struggle unless i get the the flash of inspiration and i can follow the like ride the momentum of the thing but if you're if you're in that place where this song has to be done by the end of the day or you're fired you're going to get it done like inevitably and then you're going to even if it's rubbish you're going to learn the lesson of that song and then you're going to move on to something else and write a better song so i absolutely do think that it's 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 a, a better working environment, uh, or rather, a more productive, definitely a more stressful, but I, much I more productive. Of, I I kind of feel that like we've got to a point um, now where, as composers, and 
I, I'm very proud to say that I am not like this, um, where it's become such a competitive industry that it's kind of like, I'm going to write away from everyone. I'm going to create what I create. And so no one can kind of steal it or take the ideas. Whereas I kind of feel back then, it was more of a kind of like, you know, hey, Roger, come and listen to this. Is there any way you can help me out? Oh, yeah, you could do this, you could that. Oh, Bernie, why don't you play a, a minor fifth instead of a third? Do you know what I mean? There's, there was more of this kind of community of musicians that were that were helping each other out um, more uh, rather than this kind of, you know, oh, I'm just going to go and work on my own thing and try and, you know, get something out of it that way. Because I feel there kind of had to be. There was kind of no choice. I mean, it's called Tim Pan Alley, for God's sake. You couldn't walk down the street without hearing these tunes, these pianos, these things that were coming out, you know, the windows and the doors. So there comes a point where you kind of, you know, you have no curtain, you have no barrier where you just have to say, do you know what? If someone can give me an idea that's going to help me, you know, make money and get out of here, then why not take that? So I kind of feel it was more of a collaborative process back then. Um, and... You know, we, we, and I say we as in myself and Willie, and, and you know, and Tomek and anyone else in the band that, we, that, you know, we're writing a song together. It is a collaborative process. It is a collaborative process through and through. You know, there's no kind of like, this is my song, this is my riff, this is what I'm doing, this is what you're doing. It's a very, like, very open, very honest kind of environment. But I have worked with a lot of musicians where it's not like that, where it's, you know, it's very keep it to yourself and I'm going to... um present this to you when it's finished and just to let everyone know this is my song um which you know is absolutely fine but i just find the different the difference in that really really interesting you know yeah well i think mr winnie weeks that hello mate hello mate interesting you've brought up tim pan alley because obviously those writers were writing you do know that i brought that up not willie yeah i know but i'm about to get to the why yeah okay it's interesting you talk about Tim Pan Alley, Jay. Do you take uh, a pause for... Oh, I said, so we could edit him. Great, great. Yeah. I'm not editing that. <sighs> Absolutely not. All my mistakes you keep in. Because <laughs> it's just waffle now, isn't it? It's just waffle. Right. Interesting you brought up Tim Pan Alley because the people that were writing weren't necessarily writing for themselves, as, as you said. Um, they're writing for other people. But I personally find it interesting when people write for themselves. And I don't know what you got in your notes there chris about artists that write for themselves why do i feel like he can see my notes and he's peering i don't know i just had a feeling you don't know what you because i didn't i didn't really look up much about tim pan alley i looked up more about people that wrote for themselves which i found more interesting well not more interesting not more interesting that's it isn't it but i think that's 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 like two things you're doing yeah just you're performing it and you're writing it but i think that's the question i'm asking you guys is kind of like do you think, first of all, do you think it was like that back then? Because I'm not saying, I'm not saying that it was definitely a like a collaborative environment. It, of course, there was going to be a competitive element to it. like, And there were going to be certain people and certain times where it was a very competitive kind of environment. But I'm just sort of saying, do you think that that it was different back then? And if so, how and why? And do you think that we're missing out or losing a kind of element to songwriting because of that oh uh no um i wonder (laughs) you're right mate i wonder if the 
the songwriting world did get very competitive and this is my song i'm not gonna give it to anyone so therefore i'm gonna keep it for myself yeah, that's very true hence why it did become redundant in the end yeah maybe a little bit I, I, you know and the, the more songwriting became a business and people were getting money a lot of money from doing it if you know if you're a success um you know that the aspiration to be a songwriter even today to a certain element oh i'm a singer songwriter you sort of like oh cool you know and hopefully they can they can make it and because they've seen other sing singer songwriters progress and do well you know look at ed sheeran he's just a guy with a guitar essentially you know and he's actually smashed all the billboards and record deals and yeah, yeah jay loves him but um i wonder if it got less collaborative in, ten in sense of the alley the the um the, the community of, yeah i wonder if that's kind of kind of got lost a little bit in the sense of like you know you know i love to think somebody looking over the shoulder going what have you got there oh nothing 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 you know sort of it'd be really interesting wouldn't you it know. to sort of i mean we know a lot of people that are songwriters and that are um within their field imagine if we could do some sort of experiment one day where we could get like these three or four buildings and pack them full mm. of musicians and songwriters and composers and say right guys there's four publishers here and you can approach them at any point with anything that you have written or composed and um, they're going to tell you whether they want to take it on and try and sell it, you know, and, and see what happens um, within that community as an experiment. Are people going to get competitive to the point where they, they don't talk to each other or are they going to start helping each other? You know, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. I just, I find it kind of not in interesting, not just from a musical point of view, but from kind of like a social aspect as well, mm. you know? What do you think, Willie? I think people, I think the competitive element is inevitable and sort of eternal. I mean, you can go back to Mozart and Salieri, right? Famously and infamously, lots has been written about that, factually and not. But like people have always wanted to get one up on the next person. But I, I think a really interesting thing, and Tom, like you almost touched on it then, is is the commercial aspect of, of this whole thing. Because once it becomes about business, it does become about a different thing. And so we could talk about, you know, uh, the blues and, and, and the folk tradition and passing these songs down as a way of educating and advising, passing on wisdom, that sort of thing. When it becomes a commercial thing, everything seems to speed up quite a lot more because there's there's more need for change. So, I mean, it's amazing that Tim Pan Alley rises up and then sort of by about a century later, it's essentially decimated and there's just a few people left because the singer-songwriter has sort of taken over. Do you see what I mean? And so because people see that that particular aspect rising up, the, the literal composer, lyricist, songwriter working as an industry... And then the performer starts to think, oh, well, I mean, I can do that. I can I can do all of that as well. Just just come to me. I'll be a one stop shop. And so it starts to be lost again in a funny sort of way. And there are people who like Jimmy Webb and people like that who are still knocking about and who still are songwriters exclusively. But they're few and far between these days, you know, and they have gone into into theater or into, you know, writing songs for specific artists or anything like that. And it is something that comes out of the uh, the jazz tradition and the big band tradition. People obviously were writing songs for Sinatra very famously, and he always took the time to sort of acknowledge them um, working for individual studios. But I think it's it's another interesting thing is um, rock and roll really comes from the the everyday and the everyman 
right and it and, and that's sort of exemplified by the the rise of the the singer songwriter because all of a sudden you don't have to have the classical education and be able to play the piano and know chord progressions and musical theory and be able to write it down so that you can sell it you just have to be able to play it so when buddy holly grabs his strat he only needs to know those three chords because that's how he's written the song yeah exactly yeah and it's it's a very different sort of thing and it becomes because it's so um sort of primitive and primal it well no it's definitely primitive and it becomes primal because it comes from such a, a simple structure as we were talking about the 145 12 bar blues structure it becomes about everything else that you bring to the table which songwriters can't write down on a piece of paper exactly we've always said this like between us all but like there's a lot of rock and roll that cannot be written down it and can't. i think that's that is definitely um what you're kind of saying and um within that is it like you know like i could turn up you know to any rock and roll band in the world and pick up a guitar and be like right you know i won't even know their names where they're from even if they speak english or whatever and pick up a guitar and jam along and play with them and as long as i as long as i know how to do a 145 or you know the standard rock and roll or blues chord progression then then it's fine everything else that i do is down to me and it's about that decoration it's about that it's about me putting me into that chord progression you know it's about me taking that basic as i said earlier that basic baked cake i love the cake yeah the cake works really well um that basic (laughs) baked like sponge if you will and and me putting my own decoration on it in whatever way i want and can because whatever i do it will work because we have that basic kind of skeleton, that basic kind of cake, you know? Um, and I think that's the difference between the turn of rock and roll and any other music is that you you kind of, you know, you turn up to to a jazz concert and you say, oh, what are you going to play? You know, the majority of the time you're going to say, well, I'm going to need a lead sheet. Or if you turn up to like, even like an, uh, an indie rock and roll gig, there are going to be points where certain chords are thrown in or breakdowns are going to be thrown in that you are never going to know unless you know and that's the difference so you yeah. can't let loose and put that decoration on your on your metaphorical cake because the cake is so it's got so many ingredients in it's such an intense you know complicated cake that unless you've studied it you are never going to know how to execute well, that decoration you know i think well it's funny you, you You've both mentioned about that sort of the the every man or woman can um, do rock and roll, um, or rather write rock and roll. Um, but I got particularly fascinated with um, a writing duo called Lieber and Stoller, mm-hmm. um, who wrote a vast amount of music, not just for rock and roll era, you know, well into the sixties and seventies. Um, and they those two are not rock and rollers. In fact, one of them is like a classically trained pianist. Yeah, and yet wrote tracks like Hound Dog and Yakety Yak and uh, Del Shannon's Runaway, I believe, as well. Um, you know, and but you know, and then we were saying the other week about how the the artist comes onto the table and gives their version of it, which you know gives the fire of rock and roll and things like that. So, no, they can't write rock and roll charts. It's up to the person to give that fire. And the the two examples is Hound Dog, written for uh, Big Mama Thornton, uh, 
and Elvis's version of Hound Dog and how completely different they are. Absolutely. And yet the song is the same in terms of the dots and the chords and the... Well, that's it, isn't it? You know, <laughs> you know it, it, they've both... They've both taken that basic skeleton, but they've put their own decoration on it. And whether that's um, by using a different instrument, whether they're swinging it or making it straight, whether they're changing key, whether they're, you know, recording it with one person or 55 full orchestra or whatever. At the end of the day, the basis of the song and the meaning of the song is still the same. It's everything else that changes that makes it. Yeah. That th- th- makes that rock and roll, you mm. know? You're exactly we... right. And I don't. Sorry, Tom, go on. No, go on, Chris. Oh, very nice. I, I would say that um, in in that instance, if you look at people like Lieber and Stoller, they are coming out of the, the previous tradition and adapting a little bit. Mm. And th- I'd say that they're adapting enough to survive in that new world. I would say that it, th- those sorts of songs really come out of that sort of folky country storytelling tradition and they rely an awful lot i mean as we we've we've literally just said but they rely an awful lot on the artist but they rely a huge amount on the artist because if you just look at the song as it is it would be very difficult like it needs someone to look at it and think oh i know what i could do with that do you know what i mean Mm. well there are other people we'll talk about who whose songs stand on their own as 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 work as as literally as works as like pieces of art um in terms of writing quality but like if we look at jailhouse rock which is Lieber and Stoller, the warden mm. threw a party in the county jail the prison band was there and they began to wail the band was jumping and the joint began to swing you should have heard them knocked out jailbirds sing it's like it's great you know and, and instantly obviously your head goes to jailhouse rock the song if you look at the words it's just telling a story that rhymes in a very traditional way do you know what I mean? There's nothing particular. Absolutely. And you know what? And putting us, us talking about artists uh, putting their own decoration on it. I know for a fact, um, because I saw a, an interview with uh, this gentleman, uh, DJ Fontana, Elvis' mm. drummer, um, who, uh, who'd obviously played on Jailhouse Rock. He was the one that came up with the idea for that. Gah, gah. Mm. So when you look Imagine at Imagine it without Rock, that. Yeah, exactly, and that's the thing. Like you know, Libra, uh, you know, the, the the guys that wrote it, they would have written it down as just a kind of basic twelve bar bluesy. Here's the lyrics. Here's the kind of idea we want. You know, this is the tempo. This is the key. Blah 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 blah. But it was DJ Fontana that sat there, and when Elvis went one to a party and a car, and he went ga ga, and you're like, oh my god, that is one of the main th- motifs. In the song that make jailhouse rock jailhouse rock and that is the decoration that we are talking about the thing i'm not too sure about is the distance with the songwriter and the artist in this sense let's let's use jailhouse rock again like were they in the room when they tried it out the first time because i know for a fact when they recorded hound dog they heard it on the radio i think the first time they you know because right. the rights were different back then and yeah yeah um you know anyone could cover anything to a certain degree and um, if, now, if you're you know, a professional you, you songwriter you'll have a catalogue of songs and oh, you're yeah. not going to go to the, every recording of every song that's ever done. And why would you, you know, mm. like that, that doesn't make any economic sense. They've just, they've got their songs. You buy the rights to the song, you can record it or, or you record it and then you buy the rights to release it. Sure. But I, I just, I don't feel like from, 
they're they're looking at it from a commercial perspective. I think they're thinking it's mm. selling the song, exactly. and once it's sold, yeah. boom. And the thing is, I think if you are if you're a gardener, then you garden. If you're a gardener but also a barman, you do both. And at the end of the day, you look at someone like Elvis Presley. Okay, he was a performer, but there's so many elements involved in that. He has to sing. He has to control his band and the way that he wants his songs recorded. And and we know he was like that um, because of uh, how we've researched him and it through you know having Chuck Mead on the program and what he said. He was fully in control of his own band. He knew what we wanted. Uh, he knew what he wanted and how he was going to have that and how it was going to be recorded and how the band was going to work around him. So he's got a lot more things to think about. And I think when it comes to a songwriter, when they have only the songwriting to think about, they're not a public figure. They don't need to worry about making sure their hair's cut fresh and that they've got to go out and speak to the public and they've got to perform. All they have to do day in, day out is write songs, which I'm not saying is easy, but the point I'm trying to make is, is that I think it then becomes kind of more of a second nature for them to be able to create create more quality songs on a more frequent basis. And so like Willie said, it's more of like a... I'm not just writing one song every two or three weeks. I'm yeah. writing five, six songs a week, and they're kind of just going out. And I think there's a huge difference between being the songwriter and being a producer in the room when that happens. And it's it's kind of like when someone writes a play. You know, if you the kind of general rule is if you've written a play or a show, then you are not a director in it because you need that outside non-writing perspective to bring a different and fresh and organic angle to that show and i i truly believe it's the same with music as well is that like i'm not gonna have someone produce a track if they've written it themselves you know you need a you need some fresh ears and i think that's how it was so i think it was very much a hey guys i've written like five or six songs here's what they sound like have a listen and pick what ones you like and and that's what they like and i know and i know that when jailhouse rock was written it was written specifically for elvis mm. um and so it was more of like a hey these two guys are some of the best songwriters in the industry they've written you this song it's gonna be good and then they take it on and then it's elvis and scotty and bill and dj and everyone that's in that room going what can we do to make this Elvis Presley what can we do to make this rock and roll they you know we've been given a composition and we're the ones that now need to uh, evolve that make that grow into something else than it already is it's funny as well um I don't know about you because I'm not a business person I'm a performer and musician I we cut You're not even that really brilliant yeah we cut out you know he has been let go by this, his band this story brilliant yeah <laughs> I can't believe I found out here as well well, all yeah. the places. No, this um, is the best place, trust me. Oh, thanks, mate. That means a lot. Um, on the back of Jailhouse Rock, um, because they were working so well with each other, uh, particularly Stoller and Elvis, um, uh, he wrote uh, Don't, the track, you know, um, yep. with Elvis, and kind of, kind of just gave it to Elvis. And obviously there was a whole process then when Elvis Presley was, you know, doing really well. And there was like a person that selected his songs. And then you also had the colonel and... There were so many like middlemen 
uh, in the way and they kind of they were working so well with each other just bouncing off each other that um kind of just gave them don't and there was this uproar in the elvis sort of like office you know lots sort of like how dare you go behind me you know can you imagine going behind the colonel you know anything going behind <laughs> behind him um but basically it was elvis that um overrun it all saying uh the problem is I like it and that's why that's why I want to record it because it it's written for me and um want to want to want to cut out the business end of songwriting and bring a bit of heart into it yeah, yeah exactly that so um yeah I don't I don't want to have to like listen to 50 songs as in the Tim Pan Alley sort of like you know what do you think of this one Elvis mm, what do you think of this one Elvis mm, you know yeah I want to just somebody go hi I've written this melody I think it'll go really nice for your voice bang and somebody that you know really well well, here's, here's a really kind of um, sad story uh, that um, that I found out from a documentary quite a while ago. It's that um, in the ghetto, Elvis Presley, mm. which we can all agree is unbelievably beautiful song. Like When was that written? It's later, isn't it? Oh, a lot later, yeah. 70s? Yes, yeah. yeah, something like right. that. I can't really remember. I have to look at that. But um, I think it was early 70s, very, very early 70s. Um, have a look now, see if we can find out. Um, but they, the guys that wrote it, I'm not sure who wrote it, kind of said, we have this song for you, Elvis. And he was like, brilliant. It's lovely. I like the idea of it. And so Elvis brought these guys, or the, at least the Colonel brought these guys into the studio where they were. And there were all these kind of new musicians. And they were the ones that sat around with Elvis and created this song. You know, that famous guitar riff, the ging, 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 you know, and all these kind of things. And they were paid a basic fee of however many dollars and then left and then that was it. And it's kind of like these were the guys that came in and did that decoration. And that's why I think it's different. You're not just coming in as like this session musician that's playing what's written. You're putting a little bit of yourself and a little bit of your heart in there and kind of not getting what you deserve back. And I remember seeing these guys on the documentary and they just looked so crestfallen and so kind of sad that this song became as big and famous and heartwarming as it was. Um, and they were kind of just sort of left in the shadows. And it's it just seems so wrong because the industry had taken it as, you guys are session musicians, you're going to play. You know, it's kind of like, you know, someone always wanting that extra bit from you and you having to either be, you know, give up that extra bit of cash or, or, or fame or acknowledgement and be part of that or just be cutthroat and say I'm not paid for that sorry I'm just here to do what I'm here to do you know um and there's always that kind of fight you know do you take the chance do you not um and in that kind of circumstance um for them specifically it, it kind of didn't work out which is really sad um, 1969 for the listeners uh, okay um it's actually from his album uh Elvis in Memphis, and it was actually the first time he recorded in Memphis since leaving, um, some, uh, well, yes, it's 1956. Which is why I think he had wow. a different band, because right. they called on a lot of local musicians. Um, but yeah, no, it's um, it's really sad to watch. I'm not sure what documentary that's on. I mean, I've, I've seen so many, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you um, where to start with that. But um, yeah, it's kind of sad to see these guys who are just, you know this song that has become so huge to just kind of have been shelved and been like, you've done your bit, see you later. Um, when at the end of it, they've probably had a major, major, major input into such an amazing song. 
Mm. Yeah, you're right. And at least gave the 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 the, the framework and you know the the idea behind it, which would never have existed without them. And yeah, all it's of that a sudden, whole thing, isn't it? Where like you know, it's how much of myself do I give to this song or this artist or this um because you know it's it's kind of like a lot of these function bands that have sort of rotating musicians you know we have i'm I'm obviously not going to mention names but we the three of us have played for a specific one and worked around the world with these guys and they're great and it's brilliant and we work with some amazing musicians but you kind of think to yourself do i show my whole hand because then someone else might take that and then you you lose that that credit you lose that kind of and it, and the idea of it being yours has just disappeared into the ether well um just going back to because you want to talk about that'll be the day i imagine chris, I, chris among does. others yes i do um about i watched a documentary about that how was buddy just walking down the street and there was this an old blues guitarist just playing that diddly diddly ding oh yeah kind of on loop um and that guy's not credited and god knows where he is or where he ended up or even if he ended up being a musician, but... But I do think there is a difference is it between... take. No, I don't think it's the same, because I do think there's a difference between taking taking an idea and an influence from someone um, and also creating something so thoroughly, whether oh, it be right. a melody, an a riff, an idea, and, and creating something so original in yourself and in your head that, um, that it then kind of gets taken from you and not credited Mm -hmm. i think there's a big difference in that you know um oh yeah i mean well his solo his guitar solo in that i mean it's just uh, so much there's so much going on in that guitar solo alone um because in this documentary i saw jerry allison actually breaks it down and says oh yeah so that's from the same blues guitarist that's one of his little things he practiced over and over again like you know we were talking the other day about how that's a classic j lick on the guitar or he just said that's just a classic buddy thing he always did on guitar and you know so it's taken all those influences to make that solo like that's another rock and roll song where you have to do that solo but that is almost dotted yeah. down like the rock around the clock solo that yeah, is dots 100%. um del shannon runaway that's another one you have to do that yeah yeah on the organ yeah on the organ you have to do that solo um so so that is that is a funny one actually you know what why why does it become that do you think chris why do you think we have to do those solos because of popularity because because of popularity because of the far-reaching nature of it um i think if you like it's one of those ones where if you didn't play that solo people would feel like that you weren't playing the song really at the end of the day like if you listen to the um the original recording of that'll be the day the demo recording which is much higher and slower and um a very strange recording it's obviously it's essentially the same song but it feels completely different and and it, it, it you can tell why it wouldn't sell because it doesn't have that same energy behind it and it doesn't have that same um just that same zing which the later one gets um but it's yeah it's 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 a tricky one really but there definitely are those those solos those licks those i think they become things. so profound that if you didn't play them live the audience would kind of feel robbed in a way. Yeah, it's like yeah, playing missing. Bohemian Rhapsody and missing out the 
um, the harmony silhouette section, yeah. people would be yeah. like, what the hell? You yeah, know, it's, it's that kind of... Even if they didn't um, know, they would know so on some like, level. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Is I could have just... the real life? <laughs> I have such a sad song. I mean, what I could have done with Bohemian Rhapsody is it's like missing out the solo in Bohemian oh, yeah, Rhapsody. Oh, yeah, the solo. Yeah, yeah. Um, solo. But, um, but it is. It's like that. And I think a lot of people feel that when they that they pay and dedicate time and love and passion and, and money to see someone, um, that they they are kind of paying for that. And when you kind of don't deliver uh, deliver the goods to to a track that has been so commercially successful, um, they do kind of feel like they're they're being um they're being kind of robbed a bit, you know? Which which is understandable, but at the same time I think there's definitely a balance between Making sure the listener gets what they want, but also being true to what you want to play and how you want to play it, you know? I think you're absolutely right. Um, we, we, this this is a, a nice bridging point because we've talked about um, the forms, we've talked about the 12-bar blues, we've talked about the previous forms, and we've talked about uh, the composing tradition bleeding into the um, songwriting profession, uh, as in on an industrial level. Shall we start to talk, boys, about the songwriter, the singer-songwriter, and the rise of... This seems like a good juncture to jump into it. Nah. Oh, fair enough. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been... <laughs> See, that's how it feels all the time when I propose something, when you get shot down like yeah, that. but it's a joke. We don't go away crying well... about it. <laughs> Tell me, seriously, why are you still here? <laughs> <laughs> So no, that's blatantly uh, obvious as well. Kicked out the band. Now yeah, bugger God. off. Um, <laughs> no, definitely. Um, I think that's a good one. Uh, good one for you to start, Willie. If if you don't yeah. mind. No, absolutely. What I'd love to do, boys. I am uh, absolutely fascinated by uh, lyrics, by language, by the structure of things like that. So what I want to look at are five or six songs in some depth. Um, by by sort of the the big rock and roll singer songwriters of the day essentially that's what i want to do um, we've already talked about an, an awful lot so i don't really want to harp on about little richard but we should um as you someone who we're very familiar with we should just start with him briefly i just want to talk about tutti frutti again because this idea oh, if we have to well yeah let's take a moment can we just listen to a little bit of tutti frutti before we talk about it Old, does it it's amazing the energy that comes off it straight away it's just like oh my good god Do you know what if if someone said to me you had to listen to tutti frutti at the first minute past the hour of every hour for the rest <laughs> of your life i'd be like yeah 
That's absolutely yeah, that'll fine. Do. That'll do. Like if you do had a I grandfather mean? clock and little Richard popped out of it. <gasps> I need, you're I need something one of now. those. You're onto something. Our but it would never tell the time. No, it would no. just be like, the time is It's time to rock and roll, baby. No, I was going to say, at the Grammys, the time is me. I'm the time. All one babaloo. That will work as well. Uh, so, so Tutti Frutti, right? We've talked about this song at some length. We know that the lyrics were changed. Uh, it, it's a Little Richard song written by him. And there's a big, lovely history about how he wrote the song. The, the lyricist came in and changed a few of the words a little bit. But we've talked a little bit about how th- this divergence between jazz and rock and roll is from uh, between the intellectual and more of the blue collar sort of person, the everyday, the real, the... Um, it's like if you look at the the jazz, not even the jazz world, but the big band world, it's very, very romantic stuff. Very, very romantic stuff. You think of, I don't know, Fly Me to the Moon, uh, The Way You Look Tonight, Come Fly With Me. It, all of these songs, are, even though they're, they're, they're beautifully orchestrated, beautifully sung, they're reasonably empty of, of, of personal, personal values and sort of attributes. Whereas... A what babalooba, a what bamboom is something that Little Richard says. That's what he used to say. And listening to interviews with Little Richard, as we've done, you can just hear him. Of course, that's the sort of thing that he used to say. People used to say, "Oh, how you doing, Richard?" You say, "A what babalooba, a what bamboom." It's like, of course, that's what he used to say. It's like, so of it's course, part it goes in his him. song. Like, yeah. you can you can hear, like you said, in interviews and uh, and in other songs and stuff. Like that is part of his like like being. It's like. If anyone else said it, you'd be like, what? But it's kind of like, y- you just know from listening to him speak in interviews and in other tracks um, that when you listen to that track, it it doesn't feel weird. You're not, I have never, honestly, I've never ever gone, what the hell does that mean? Because, I know. To, because to me, I only ever did that on the Little Richard podcast when, when one of you guys said, what does that even mean? I was like, that's a really good point. Mm. I probably listened to that song. That's probably in the in in my top ten twenty songs I've ever listened to the most in my life, and I've never ever gone. What the hell does that mean? Because yeah. it's so organic, it is so Absolutely. natural, it is so part of his being that um it, that it just it's 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 uncompromised. You, you you don't question it in any way. Can I ask a question? If you take away the little Richardism, so the one band bloom has gone, the all the note ending and the riffing that we've spoken about in, in length, the melody you're left with is Pat Boone. Is Pat Boone, <laughs> correct. But it's not very, you know, if if I was going to say, here's a melody, it's minor third and one, pretty much. Do you know what I mean? It could, it could easily be muddied... Um, I did that purposely with no energy, but I mean, if you try to match his energy, oh, I didn't notice the not difference. Doing... <laughs> it's called Pat Boone Savinsky. Um, <laughs> the actual songwriting element of that song isn't. Um, I don't know. It, it, you know, it's so little Richard that version as well. Well, you're right. Th- this is the thing. This song is not a great. Is not a great song. And it's it's a really interesting thing that you say um, because there, there's there's so much written about this particular thing, which is that it doesn't have to be a great song to be a hit record. That's the big difference. Mm. And this is not a great song. This is an absolute hit record. 
because the impact of the whole thing is absolutely spot on and the and everything is is full because of what little richard is putting in there and everything because it comes so much from him he is able to fill it up with um with something that is entertaining for the listener and something that really hooks them in and so every little thing becomes a hook and there's actually um there's a modern songwriter who does exactly the same thing it's a chap called max martin who you might have heard of boys who's had 21 us number ones uh, and he's got a style, a songwriting style, which he calls melodic math, in which every sound that he makes within a song is calculated for maximum impact. It's the sort of thing that, that he does by technique, but that Little Richard did purely organically. And so this guy wrote, uh, hit me, baby, one more time. And he put hit me in there because he liked the way that it sounded, never thought for a moment about what it meant. Uh, and you can, there's all sorts of examples of that sort of thing. It's like the word baby being a really, really popular word. It's because it's really, uh, it's, it's a really percussive word. Like if you had honey in there instead of baby, the ba 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 is lost and you suddenly get honey, honey. And, and not just that, like you think of something baby to everyone, that means something that every time someone uses or hears the word baby, it's done in a sense of like, like positive affection of love or or which gives you that kind of there's like a slight i don't know there's there's maybe some weird kind of slight serotonin boost in that that makes you kind of go oh you know maybe baby, it, but where it did that come something. from where did we that were come? all once babies as well that's also good ridiculous but initially <laughs> i mean as ridiculous You're as he seriously is <sighs> tomek is right because in at some point i mean word, he is right we were all babies at some point <laughs> but that word will just have meant that we were once infant children and at some point it's become a lyric of a song and it's become the go-to lyric for describing mm. the person that you love and i think the reason for that is literally because of the sound and that's why it's endured in the way that it has baby 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 and it's come back so that baby now in a sort of a initially an urban dictionary sort of way and now an actual dictionary sort of way baby means like oh she's my baby that's how it goes but it comes from the music i think and it comes from the the percussive nature of it and talking about um, the start of Tutti Frutti, that famous, famous bit, that exists as well all over the shop. Because if you think of, um, in modern music, Can't Get You Out of My Head by Kylie Minogue, it's got na na na, na na na, na. Yep. it means nothing. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm blue, da ba dee da ba da. He says da ba dee da ba da, it means nothing. Or da do ram ram ram, da do ram ram. And yeah. that one's really interesting because that one's in place of, that's like, that's a moment of where there should be words, but they've replaced it with something slightly yeah. more suggestive. It's just like you're telling a little, yeah. a little something extra. Yeah, It's like, do you know what I mean? I woke up today and I went to the bank. I'm going to sing another story. Blah, 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 blah. You're like, what is going on? I mean, it's true, but the real story is in what they're not saying. Do you know what I mean? But to, to the bank really got me. I, don't know what <laughs> the I mean, I don't know what he's talking about. Honestly. He's a <laughs> mess of a man. Well, I, I tried to go to the bank the other day, but they've actually started closing a lot of branches yeah. down. So oh, sorry, tough, carry on, Willie. No, no, it's fine. That's we've got to talk about the important stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I think no tutti frutti is. It's not one that we should harp on about because we talked about it at length. So, 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 so do you think, Willie, that a lot of the kind of addictive um wanting to hear a song 
that is catchy, really, really gets to part of you, that becomes very commercial and eventually vulgarised and gets to the point where people are absolutely sick to hell of it. Do you think a lot of that isn't necessarily about the lyrics, but about that rhythmic, melodic sense within like the vocal lines in a way? Because I kind of feel like you could take a lot of these songs and re- just replace all the words with just absolute jibber-jabber. And uh, and it may still actually be quite successful, you know? Uh, well, I think there are, there are rock and roll songs and there are rock and roll songs. That, it, when there's a personality like Little Richard, he could sing anything and you'd still be like, that is absolutely awesome. However, the, al- the alternative rock and roll song and it's, I mean, it, you've segued this just beautifully, I have to say. This is the organic segue we were looking for. You and I do this quite a lot, don't we, without knowing it? Isn't it amazing? But Isn't it? it? We and need Tomic to talk about... Tomic doesn't do anything. And Tomic's here. Why are you still here? You've been fired Jesus. like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Leave a 20 on the table and get out. Um, no, because this is the alternative, right? If we imagine the early rock and roll songs, which are all passion and rebelliousness and and energy and and blue collar uh, it's about fast cars and it's it, it's that sort of thing it's the rocket 88 which we must talk about as well then think about chuck berry as a songwriter right because chuck berry is someone who embodies the attitude and the passion and even though he's older that teenage sort of angst and and a lot of people would say just like you just did that the lyrics aren't necessarily as important. Chuck Berry's the one that says, actually, no, the, the lyrics are just as important. And I'm going to tell agree. you the story. Yeah, 110 billion percent, which is well, absolutely that is a percentage. That really um, is. I completely agree, which is amazing because people say, oh, rock and roll sounds all the same. Okay, well, you take a song like Tutti Fruity and compare it with something like uh, Brown Eyed Handsome Man. Brown Eyed Handsome Man is about two things. It's about... Um, that cheeky little riff he does in the middle. But even if that wasn't in there, um, it's about the story. Absolutely. Every single verse in that song, I would literally give a left nut to have written one verse of yeah. that song. Because One line of it. Oh my God, it is genius. And every time I sing or play or or listen to that song, I just think, how on earth did he come up with some of those lines? You know, I, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So clever, and it's and it's not the it's not just Brown Eyed Handsome. It's no particular. It's even yeah. Johnny Be Good. It's all these songs that he has written. Roll over Beethoven. Um, it, I, I could literally sit here for hours and hours and hours. This man, and I've said it before. You know, I always have my my. Uh, you do famously. My famous little kind of group of like, I think this is the best guitarist and the best pianist. I truly believe, and I will say this until the day I die, Chuck Berry is the best rock and roll lyricist that has ever and will ever live. Because some of the stuff he comes up with is just unbelievable. And I know that there's a couple of songs we've written uh, lately, Willie, that you have written the lyrics to, that you have done in that Chuck style. And it's and it's it's bloody hard isn't it like it's trying to get so satisfying yeah because it's like a puzzle because not only does he get the fact that like he gets a story across and that it makes sense and that it um and that it kind of like rhythmically um and and you know it, it, it not just rhythmically or musically makes sense 
but there's this like cleverness to it there's this real twist of like oh my god that's so clever like one of my yeah. favorite ever verses is Barnard handsome man which is Milo de venus was a beautiful lass with the world in the palm of her hand she lost both arms uh to a wrestling match to win a brown eyed handsome man now the whole point of that song is that everyone's trying to get this brown eyed handsome man and it goes through all these points in time where things happen to try and win a brown and handsome man now Milo de venus as we know is a statue uh, uh, that has no arms, famously. Venus de Milo, um, actually. Uh, sorry, Venus de Milo, yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because in the actual lyrics he says Milo de Venus. I know, which is even better. Which is even better because he gets it wrong. Uh, but um, you're right, uh, Venus de Milo uh, was famous uh, not for not having any arms because um, uh, Venus de Milo definitely had arms, But the f- which is what makes it so clever is that it's the statue that we found as a human race that has no arms and that's what makes her so famous is that you say oh venus de milo and they go who's that oh you know the statue with no arms yeah that's her oh okay that makes sense and so he refers that back to it's genius it, it, to that statue's supposed to be like that and she lost both um, arms in a wrestling match like it's just all these twists and turns and pulls yeah. and pushes he he manages to put a whole story together in four lines of a verse and that to me is just i'm gonna beat this it's genius brilliant <laughs> yeah i was gonna say the, tell me please um i remember when i had to sing no play, uh, no particular place to go and uh, i was really worried about like getting all those lyrics out and getting them all right i would have things. actually loved to have heard that how did it go uh, no particular place to go. Dun, 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 oh dun, dun. my god! Yeah, like he that. really is Pat Boone, isn't he? <laughs> Whoa. I was putting it on, lads. Um, but yeah, and actually, it was so easy to remember because it f- not only did it feel right, it also sounded right. And uh, in terms of the, you know the lyric sound, what you were mentioning before, Willie, about you know uh, the the fricatives and the sort of uh, the the placements of the words, as well as the story, it actually was one of the easiest songs to um to put to perform in a way once you get it once you it's, you know think about it you just have to think about his song yeah, you can't just go it's to the same with johnny uh, it's, you know you have to it's the same with johnny yeah. it's a story yeah yeah you were starting out saying this is the boy this is who he is this is what he wants to be this is how people know him and this is what he's gonna this is what he's gonna turn out to in the end you know it is a story and the way i remember it is being a whole kind of like once upon a time and mm. then the good bit and then the next bit in the story and then the end, like that's like for someone to write like that i i genuinely cannot think of anyone who was written like that with that much detail in that like that condensed way because there's sometimes like brown eyed handsome man where you've got like like there's like six different stories in in the which which it's true. accumulate into one main story like it is just genius like he is just it, it's it completely great. throws me. It throws me. It is, again, a Willy Week special. It is baffling how he does it. It is baffling. Mm-hmm. It's flabbergasting. It's all these things. Boys, let me take you through just briefly. Um, I'm sure you'll be aware, but for our listeners, um, when Chuck Berry went to see Muddy Waters and he asked him, he said, I've been writing songs. I want to um, be a musician, essentially. And Muddy Waters said, oh, great. Go and find Leonard Chess at Chess Studios. And so off he went and he made a big spiel to, to Chess and he played to him, played a song called Ida Red. And Chess instantly said, he saw the potential in it, but he wanted a bigger sound. And so he added some bass and some maracas to, to Barry's little trio there. And he said, write new lyrics because the kids want the big beat, the cars and young love. And so he wrote 
Maybelline. Can we hear ah, a little yes. bit of Maybelline? in that in the verse that like he 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 does phrasing but instead of it being like the standard that you would know like being two um or four he does three and then goes back into that Mm. like reprise of the chorus like and he gets away with it like it's only unless you think about it that you that you kind of go oh my god yeah he's right like listen back to that he will do he would each verse is three phrases and it's not two or four which is like a standard timing and it's just it's just that in itself. It's like he just dares to do that. Yeah. Why not? And if you think of that as as one of the, the the earliest examples of his writing, and he's writing on demand there because Leonard Chess has told him what what he wants to hear essentially, and what he does there is he takes the 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 really the common things of the day. So he's talking about uh, Cadillac are rolling on the open road. Nothing will outrun my V8 Ford. Everyone's talking about cars at the moment. It's it's about freedom and the open road and all of these big teenage american dreams that that's what it's sort of all about however chuck berry's one of the things that he does which is like another gentleman um william shakespeare he creates his own words all the time because he wants specific sounds to sit in lines so uh he says uh, as i was motivating over the hill as in motivating but motor as in the car yeah. motivating over the hill he says it again in um, You Never Can Tell. They furnished off an apartment with a two-room Roebuck sale. The coolerator was crammed with TV dinners and ginger ale. He could have said, refrigerator. He could have said, refrigerator was crammed with TV dinners and ginger ale. He wanted to say, the coolerator. Because that's the specific sound that he wanted Yeah, he there. wants cool out there. Yeah, yeah. and He wants the cool hard, there, he wants that. The, 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 the thing is, that you, you say that and a lot of people will go, well, that's fine. What's hard about that? He makes his own words up. But that is the hard thing. Try and sit there and not just make up a word that's going to work like uh, with the syllables or or with the beat and the rhythm and the time and the, and the tone and stuff. It's saying something that is realistic or believable or that you... Do you know what? I'm going to be completely honest, Willie. I never, ever, ever... Those two examples, I've never thought about going, is that a real word? And that's the genius of it because exactly, he sings we know it exactly what he means. Exactly, he creates it in his own world so that it just becomes a real word. You don't question it, and that is a skill within itself. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's one of those things where yeah, I mean, as you say, anyone can create your own words and whatever, and it can it can be absolutely fine. But he he needs specific sounds to sit in specific places because he's thinking in this um, this rhythmical and and purely sonic way. At the same time as writing this song, obviously uh, in Maybelline, the song is a simple one because he's still young and, you know, he's only just starting out, really. So it's it's not quite the same uh, level. But if we talk about the song that, that you and Tomic were talking about, Just a Mo, no particular place to go. One of my favorite lines in this uh, in this song, the night was young and the moon was bold. 
Oh my God. The moon was bold. So there's something in um, in classical linguistic education which talks about monosyllables versus polysyllables, right? So words which have got one sound versus words which have got many sounds. And so like 17 is, is traditionally like a light word. It's not a word that you hammer 17. It's the same thing in Shakespeare. The, the monosyllables carry the weight and they carry the emotion and the thought to be or not to be. That is the question. Tis nobler yep. in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows, etc. That, that's how it sits. The moon was bold. They both decided to take a stroll. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he doesn't know in an, in an educated, intellectual way. He knows in a visceral, organic way exactly what he's doing, where the stresses sit. And um, I, I find it absolutely fascinating. And then the throwaway line is, of course, can you imagine the way I felt? I couldn't unfasten a safety belt. It's just like that. That's the moment where it comes back to it's. It stops being this powerful yeah, romantic it's like, thing. Yeah, it's romantic, it's poetic, again. and then being like, actually, all I wanted to do was get in a knickers. Like, yeah, exactly. And I ruined it because I couldn't get the bloody thing off. Yeah, it's, and that's it's, how and it's relatable again. Yeah, and he goes from this like, like you said, this beautiful romantic kind of like this bold poetic. Yeah, like, in the a moon sense, like you was said, bold. Like, like oh my Shakespeare god kind of play like the moon was bold like but at the end of it it finishes with this like comedic twist of like yeah but at the end of the day it doesn't really matter about all that because all i wanted to do was uh try and sleep with her and yeah, it couldn't exactly. happen because her seatbelt was too tight like it's, it's the perfect situation it's, it's and it still was ruined his um it's it's all about payoff i think with with chuck and the same with maybelline you know the the, the structure is is weird in the sense like you, you know to, to the ear you're sort of going god he's rambling on about um you know uh, qu quite a bit um and then the payoff is that you know finally when we get back to the maybelline um bit but then the same again in this song you know you've got that lovely poetic text and the music stops for you know then uh, uh for for him to explore and then he just sort of kind of throws it away in a way so he could embellish it but he doesn't he chooses not to because You're right it's relatable to the to the common it's, person it's very relatable it? well to the common gentlemen shall we say well yeah it's, that it's very, not always it's, get a plan it's it, that, you know? well no but it's that thing of always being like don't i don't care about what you know like like a lad lads aren't going to sit down and go so tell me like what was her hair like yeah yeah like, yeah, yeah what was she wearing like how was your stroll across um, yeah across the the field that night you know did you it was bold uh, what was it it was bold it was <laughs> lovely and then they're just going hey did you end up doing you know what? And and it's kind of like that's the whole joke of it is that he's kind of playing the audience off being like, you know, we went for a stroll. She looked gorgeous. The, the moon was like this. And, and then we went for a drive and it was lovely and beautiful and romantic and she smelled wonderful. Um, but for God's sake, I couldn't get my, that seatbelt yeah, off yeah. to get into, you yeah. know, it's it, that's the comedy of it. And, yeah. and that's the whole thing. It's that's just one verse. And it's a whole exactly. story in one verse. And that's. People, songwriters that have been around for generations, even songwriters that have had huge hits, struggle to get that kind of resolve, that kind of um, satisfaction from a song, from a whole song, let alone from one verse out of, you know, the 6,000 that are in no particular place to go, because we know there are so many verses. <laughs> Same with Reel Reeling and Rocking, the Chuck mm, Rose song. Yeah. Like, that, that oh, I mean... 
I, I, that one is one of my favourite favorite ones. We played that play in full the other night, boys, yeah, and it took about did. 15 and minutes. And, <laughs> but the great thing about that is, is that it has my favourite verses, and I know when you're going to sing them, and I join <laughs> in, or I just listen, and I love it. And that's the thing, each verse is its own little story. It's interesting you know? that you talk about um, his, his the, 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 the twist in the tale. Tom was talking about it a, a moment ago. Um, it's something, a, a wonderful song where he sets it up in one way and then there's the most beautiful twist is Memphis, Tennessee. Because it starts with long distance information, give me Memphis, Tennessee, help me find the party trying to get in touch with me. She could not leave her number, but I know who placed the call because my uncle took a message and he wrote it to the wall. And you're like, okay, I know what's going on here. Fine, he's just trying to find a girl and you know they, they were together last night and she's run away or whatever. Um, and then it, the drama starts to, to build a little bit more. We were pulled apart because her mum did not agree and tore apart our happy home in Memphis, Tennessee. In the very last verse, we finally find out Marie is only six years old. Information, please. Try to put me through to her in Memphis, Tennessee. It's actually his daughter that he's trying to get in touch with. All of a sudden, retrospectively, the whole song takes on a completely different colour. And you as a listener, you're, you're, you're suddenly like, oh, my God, I completely prejudged this person um, because I thought I knew what the story was because everyone's heard that story a thousand times before. And Chuck's yeah. like, actually, and no. He's playing with you psychologically throughout the it's whole brilliant. of that song. And it's genius. Like, it's, it's kind of like these writers that are sit, sitting in America or, you know, in London right now that are trying to think of these really clever um, plot lines and stories for the next for the next big Netflix series to feed the nation because people are just binging constantly on these stories. You know, the ones with the biggest twist. Chuck Berry had that twist 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. He put, you know, that song itself is, and I, I, I did that. I did exactly like you probably did and the billions of other people that heard that song across the earth did. You listen to that song and you become very, oh, this is kind of a Chuck away song. Um, hey. Chuck away song. anyone um you know um it's a very you know throwaway song and, and and you just go oh okay it's a song about love and stuff and then when you get to the last verse you kind of go oh hold on what the what on earth is happening here and then it goes to the fact that he like you said it it, it twists onto the fact that it's his daughter and you go oh my amazing God, that is what and it twist. makes you go back and listen to the song again yeah and it gives you a whole different perspective you know it's like those films that you watch and at the end you kind of go oh my god i missed that and you go and watch it again and yeah. you start to see different things every single time you watch it and it's the same and you tell me one of the rock and roll songwriter that, that has done that you you can't yeah like, it's true i mean maybe the one the two the three sort of songs that they have within their career but we're talking about a gentleman that is not only creating amazing songs musically but lyrically he is literally it's just it's just magic tricks and yeah. and mysteries and um you know and and these pleasant surprises and just just every you know you don't know what you're getting around every corner and that is just an amazing thing like to be able to do as a songwriter it's yeah. just it blows me away yeah, it's true. It, I I want to talk about just two more songs briefly with Chuck because I know I've I, we've harped on about him for ages. With all the other ones, I, d I just want to talk about specific songs, but just two more because I think these two. Chuck's a really funny one because he was a little bit older when rock and roll sort of struck. He sort of observes the thing and and sort of documents it as well as uh, taking part in it. So he's he's in an unusual position. Um, but if we look at, we've already mentioned it, Roll Over Beethoven. This is like. 
so Chuck Berry says in his autobiography, uh, he wrote this song as sort of a slap against his sister because she used to monopolize the piano with her classical lessons. And this is why he wrote this song. And if you imagine it's 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 1956 and essentially it's a message to the composers and the classical world and everyone who's come before. And it's just like, no, you're done. Get out of it roll over Beethoven, tell Tchaikovsky the news, and it's there. My temperature's rising, the jukebox is blowing a fuse, my heart's beating rhythm, my soul keeps on singing the blues, roll over Beethoven and tell Tchaikovsky the news. Temperature's rising, the whole thing's heating up, the jukebox is blowing a fuse because it can't handle where it's going, my heart's beating rhythm because I'm so involved, my soul is really feeling what's going on. It's all pretty much summed up in that word, in that verse rather for me, and in those words. This is Chuck looking at the rock and roll revolution and saying yeah and 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 celebrating it documenting it doing all of these things all at the same time he's he's sort of fascinated by what he's watching as much as he's um enjoying it and he was the first one to say that he that he said there was nothing new under the sun and that he just borrowed you know the the, the storytelling and, and the diction of someone like Nat King Cole uh, Louis Jordan lyrics Charlie Christian guitar um, muddy waters like soul and blues and all that and then putting them all together and that was it but he, he him bringing all these things together creates something new and he sort of is the the epitome of what rock and roll is which is bringing together all of these different strands and they do exist on their own blues and jump and boogie woogie and all these sorts of styles bring them all together and you do get something new you know and um there are so many artists who say, oh, I've been doing this for years. You've just called it a new thing. But it, it, this is how it happens. This is how it happens. Um, so that's Roll Over Beethoven. Can we hear a tiny bit just before we move on to the very last one? Absolutely. And I think you're right. I, I think before I play it, um, it's very much um, kind of like what we were saying is just like people within rock and roll have their own way of decoration. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, look at Elvis. It's it's the way he he would sing with that real big diaphragm and and add those little accents in it was it was little richard the way that um he would do his oohs and and put in those like sexual kind of lyrics and those like unbelievable like vocal runs and stuff you know jerry lee with his like clattering away with just the same chord and stuff yeah. but for chuck it was definitely his decoration was his his use of lyrics and the way, not even necessarily sometimes the way that they were like sung, because sometimes he would just rattle them off like words. Yeah. It was but you know, sometimes to. it was yeah, sometimes it was like more of like a rap in a sense. But um, it was just it was it was the lyrical content, which is what his decoration was, which is just what makes him just the the poet of rock and roll. But yeah. um, here's a he little is. bit of a. Uh, uh, right of a beta. Fab. Well, I'm gonna write a little letter, I'm gonna mail it to my local DJ. Yeah, it's a jumping little record, I want my jockey to play. My temperature rising, the jukebox blowing a fuse. My heart beating rhythm and my soul keep a singing the blues. 
fucking that it's just great, isn't it? That track, like it's everything fantastic. about it. It's fantastic. It's just, oh, it's banging. It's what, Tommy? What? It's banging. It's just brilliant. But the the oh, the tension he does with the lyrics, he also does with his guitar as well. That start the da na da na da na na. When's he gonna yeah. move? And then he does ging 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 It's just yeah. like he's he's doing exactly the same thing through his guitar as he is with his lyrics as well, which is just sort of when are we gonna release that ping? The sort but of you the can drop, tell like him like every other rock and roller, or at least the majority of them, it was a more like it's a subconscious decision. He's not sat there going, hmm. Now if I pull the guitar back here, or like really straddle that note, or like pull that note and really bring it back, and then do it with my vocals and stuff, it's going to connect. And it's there's going to be this like relationship between. No, he's not doing that. He's just no. doing it because that's what he feels. It's so natural and organic, and that's what I really love. Like when we write um, as a band, it's the we will sit there and write a lot, but then when it comes to certain things, we purposely leave them or at least, you know, don't kind of like sharpen them up as much as we would like to because we want that organic, like that organic feel to be there. Um, because you can definitely, especially when it comes to rock and roll, you can definitely overproduce, over, over polish something and then for me, that just then doesn't become rock and roll. You know, it's about making those mistakes or doing something off the cuff that comes like as cheesy as it sounds from like deep within your like subconscious rock and roll soul that comes out and springs upon you that you never knew was there. And the feeling comes across in a more like natural beautiful passionate way than you would ever get if you sat down and did a paint by numbers you know yeah we've talked about it before it's it's rock and roll those moments of religious experience and quincy jones agrees with you because quincy jones says you've got to leave room for god to walk in the room and that's exactly what quincy he's talking about always agrees with me he's, me and him Cheeky like boy he's, he's always like in he lads he's always like that me isn't he no isn't he? he's not no you've never met him have you yeah 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 no i have oh have you oh Okay, cool. Good. We um funnily enough, we actually shared a subway in Budapest once. Now you say that's funny, but I've heard a lot of people say that. He's always there. Always yeah. in that subway on the corner always of that street. He, yeah. He's not always eating a meatball marijuana, is he? A meatball what? I don't I don't um, think you I, met I, I, I meant to say Meatball banana hummer. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say he's not he's not always having a meatball marinara, is he? No, not always. No. Oh, uh, that's does no Quincy. That's not Quincy. Right, you haven't met him. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, that's that, a random guy in Budapest. No, you... that was Budapest Trevor. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm. Oh, well, BT. Yeah, <laughs> the great <laughs> man. And that's why we call it BT. <laughs> <laughs> this has gone mental. Yeah, let's drag um, it back on track. Possibly, uh, the one I want to finish on for Chuck is, uh, of course, it, we got to talk about Johnny Be Good. And we've we've mentioned it a few times before, but this is uh, has become the archetype and the stereotype and the cliche of rock and roll. But there's a reason that it that it does that. And it, it, again, it it really shows the the divergence that I've I've mentioned a couple of times between the intellectuals and the 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 blue collar rock and rollers who who feel it in their gut and love the feeling of these these simple songs with so much more. Um, and he that. Johnny Be Good is the country boy 
He never, ever learned to read or write so well, but he could play the guitar just like ringing a bell. It comes naturally to him. It's not something that he studied. It's something that just just comes out as though he's walloping a big old bell. It's a big noise. And that's and that's what it's all about. Do you know what the song, who the song, whom the song was written about? I thought it was about him. It is about him. That's right. And that's the thing. It, the way I see Johnny Be Good, and I think you'll agree with me, Willie, uh, and I don't really care what Tonic thinks, but like um, <laughs> the um, the way I see Johnny is like if an alien came down from some crazy planet out of space and said to me, right, I need you in one song to show me what rock and roll is. This would be that yeah. song. Pat Boone's version, though. Pat Boone, as far <laughs> as I know, never did Johnny Be Good. It would be Tomek um, Zavinsky sings Johnny Be Good. <laughs> So, oh, that's rock and roll. People um, love it, but 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 genuinely, that would be my kind of like. Yeah, I think that that's is, and and I kind of feel that people that don't even necessarily know or like rock and roll, if you said to them, "Name me a rock and roll track," the majority of the time, they are going to say Johnny Be Good, or they will have at least heard it. And I know that Back to the Future was probably a very big influence on that. Um, because Martin McFly played that and he had the Gibson uh, 335 and blah, 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 whatever. But um, that for me is the epitome musically and lyrically because it's about a boy who wants to yeah. play guitar and become a rock star. It's got that generic kind of uh, blues 145 uh, kind of setting. It's got those breakdowns that we know. It's got bends. It's got pull-offs. It's got... Uh, uh, you know, it's just got everything that you could possibly think um, that a rock and roll song would have. An yeah. electric guitar, there's a piano in the background, a drum kit, a double bass, some great lyrics. That is the kind of like the epitome of the rock and roll song. It, it's the mascot. It's the mascot of oh, rock and yeah, roll. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the line, that little country boy could play was originally that little coloured boy can play. Yes. Yeah, there's quite Barry a few knew of he had those. to change it if he wanted the song on the radio because he didn't want to alienate his white fans because they would relate, yeah. relate more to little country boy. Same Chuck as did Brown this a lot. Man. Yeah. So was he, that going to be brown? Brown skinned. Skinned. Yeah. yeah, I've yeah. heard yeah. that as well. Yeah. And also in Nadine, it was going to be um, a campaign shouting yep. like a Southern Democrat rather than a Southern diplomat. Yep. Chuck was uh, not yeah. political. Clever. He was reasonably, you know, mercenary in the way that he went about business sensible really because why would you want to alienate your fans he's not trying but, to make a point he's trying yeah, to tell exactly. stories and and you know if if you know what chuck was like he was this very headstrong i don't really care what people think kind of i'm going to do things my way take it or leave it kind of person um but it just showed you how like how how clever he was you know how his head was sort of screwed on yeah in regards to thinking to, him, uh, thinking to himself i know i've got a hit here but if i if i just if I if I keep this one word as it is, yeah. it's not going to do as well as it should do. And unfortunately, because of the way of the world back then, and unfortunately now in some respects, um, it probably wouldn't have. But he was wise enough to sort of say, "I know what I need to do to get this song where I want it to be," and he did. And uh, it's just, it's just genius, you know. Um, I, I personally, Willie, I don't think there's any reason to play Johnny because you all know it and we played it on the last podcast, but uh, uh, yeah, you can fine. if you want. No, no, fair enough, fair enough. There's no need to. Just picture Johnny Be Good in your head and play. Uh, no, 
Yeah, got it. Great. Brilliant. <laughs> That's what's going on in my head most days. How about that? Now, Tomek, for the first time, yeah. has segued beautifully into the song that I want to talk about next. <laughs> have I? Well, no, up, you have to a point. Up to a point. All right. Um, can we yeah. talk briefly, boys? And the the uh, the I want to talk about three more songs. These are brief. All right. My, our poor beleaguered listeners who are listening with bleeding ears to our voices. Um, can we talk about The Fat Man by Fats Domino? Oh, okay. Yes. Now, this, can we play a little bit of yeah, before we, we get started? Just to, good, people won't be as familiar with Just, this. Just uh, backtrack our memories. We um, uh, we featured this song a little bit on uh, the first rock and roll song. We did. Uh, this, this was... Um, this is an early contender. Fat, yeah, Fats Domino actually sort of claimed this was the first rock and roll song. Yeah prior to rocket 88 because his argument was like we've been playing this music for years man yeah classic um and this was the example uh the fat man by do you want to hear quite a funny story as well so working in uh new orleans last uh last year i thought to myself i have to go and see fat's house i have to Mm. as as we all would and and i remember sending you lads the pictures on the outside being like and you guys were like oh you lucky lucky Mm. man um and and the gentleman came up to me and he was like oh, do you want me to take the photo? And I was like, oh, that'd be great. And he took the photo and he said, can I borrow your phone? And I was like, absolutely not a problem. And took all these photos and then said to me, oh, you don't have a dollar, do you? And I was like, of course. And I had a dollar. Anyway, um, it wasn't long after that that um, I got back uh, to the rest of the guys that I was working with who were American that turned around and not only did they go, hold on, you went down to that part of New Orleans the fact that I like lent out like my phone really? and gave a dollar to it because apparently it's one of the roughest parts of New Orleans. Oh, yeah. um, oh, and yeah. um, I was just very much like, oh, well, the gentleman I was, this seemed very nice. Tomek just said, "Is that the is that the harp? Is that the mouth organ?" And he's like, "No, that's him." Oh right! Like he's. I've never thought that before. I don't know. I've always listened to that. Do you song know what? Just we, gone... we will do an episode on Fats at some point. But yeah, we we'll have I to. Just, yeah, he, he was his. Uh, I like to think that his decoration 
was the way he used his voice in so many ways. Yeah. Um, and there's there's actually a song that he's uh, that he did, uh, which I know isn't his song, uh, but it's a but it's a redo of um, a very classic New Orleans song uh, that's been around for such a long time. That's played even today in the bars by a lot of musicians that a lot of people um, know uh, about the festival Mardi Gras. Um, which has been around for hundreds of years, uh, and uh, and I'll just play a bit of it now, Willie, if that's all right. Yeah, go for it. Um, and uh, it just, you just hear, hear the way that he whistles, the control he has. But you'll see what I mean about when it comes to a song that even if it isn't his, how he puts his like his own decoration on it because it's just it's just great. He's he's brilliant. a long intro doesn't he, he certainly in does both those tracks i know obviously that one he didn't write but he loves a loves He's to show off his scene. skills do you do you see what yeah 100 percent set in the scene but just do you see what i mean like i know i'm just like rambling on about fats tracks now but like it's that's just a, like you know chuck's got his lyrics and in little rich has got his riffing and his whoo and stuff like and his screaming and yelling and stuff but like that, you know, we could pick any rock and roll artist, and we could find their decoration, mm. which is the thing that they add on top of their skeleton of like the one four five per se. Like, um, and Fats for me, it's just like the way he uses his voice in so many cool mm. different ways. One, uh, it's by uh, Clarence Frogman Henry, oh, who yes. also came from New Orleans, and it is actually, and I've actually said to you lads about covering this before. You did, um, which uh, you know, he released loads of tracks, but this was his like main big uh, hit. And I love this song. I am absolutely obsessed with this song. It's so good. It doesn't make any sense. Completely strange and weird. But listen to the song. Um, and the song is uh, Ain't Got No Home. Uh, and he just goes through the song singing the same verse, but singing it as himself, uh, as a woman, and then as a frog. Right? <laughs> but this song was massive back in the day. And he's still about now. He's still alive. And he's, yeah, he still goes and does uh, the New Orleans Jazz Festival and jumps up on stage and like sings this song. And everyone's like, oh my God, it's, it's Clarence Frogman Henry and stuff, you know. And like, <laughs> I've even thought about going over there just to see him. Like, well, People because... think songwriting and rock and roll is easy. Just <laughs> sing as a frog, man. You yeah. Be, yeah, really <laughs> proper did all right. Yeah. Um, but like, again, it's another way of another artist um using that as their decoration mm. you know uh like but, but seriously go and listen to it just click on spotify now and click in clarence frogman henry and the first track that will come up is ain't got no home it's an amazing track it's so catchy and the melodies are just 
like you'll you'll it'll be stuck in your head for days. But listen to the whole song, and he basically says like, um, I I can sing like a girl, and I can sing like a frog, and he does, and it's brilliant. Um, but again, it's the decoration. That's what it's all about. Coming back to Fat Man, why did you why did you want to talk about that? So Wistifer. So it's it's one of those things where, um, the tradition of the previous um popular music of the the swing and the big band world they would talk about all sorts of things they talk about romantic love they talk about um the places as well and 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 but not really things in their everyday lives they talk about them in in slightly more heightened disconnected ways right so something that happens in rock and roll is they start to talk about the everyday and they sort of turn it into uh more of a romantic thing chuck berry obviously is the, is the master at this something else that they do is particularly in the singer-songwriter, they make statements both musically and lyrically about themselves and about the way that they see the world and the way that they interact with the world. So in The Fat Man, uh, he says, they call me The Fat Man because I weigh 200 pounds. All the girls, they love me because I know my way around. Instantly, you've got the suggestiveness of that line, I know my way around, which obviously we, we all know exactly what he means by that, but he's not actually saying it. And he's, again, defying the expectations of being uh, someone who's overweight. And yet all the girls, they love me because I know my way around. He's selling himself because of his um, because because of his his performing attributes and the way that he lives his life. That's the thing. And he goes after it in this very, very aggressive way. Um, musically speaking, because even though it's it's essentially, I mean, it's the, the song is taken from a New Orleans tune uh, called Junk of Blues by Willie Drive Em Down Hall. Um, but it's very, very, it's a very, very different style in terms of the piano. It's much, much more aggressive. And also famously with Earl Palmer on the kit, um, it's, it's one of the first songs that has nothing but a backbeat on it, which again is very, very distinctive. And the whole thing feels like a statement against what you expect so similarly to memphis tennessee from chuck where that was a, a statement against where you thought the story was going this is a statement against who you think the man is do you see what i mean this yeah. is fats mm -hmm. talking to the world and saying you think i'm like this actually i'm like this and you're gonna love it and there's a lot of that um that element of sort of defiance and surprise in rock and roll yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. it's it's definitely like you kind of wish we had something like that today mm. you know because especially as time's gone on it's this whole like everyone has to wear makeup and everyone has to be thin and everyone has that like and he's kind of just saying like hey all the ladies love me yeah it's not because i'm good looking it's not mm. because i'm like ripped or i've lost weight or because of this it's just because of me. Oh, there's yeah. a golfer. I'm awesome. Like that. What's his name? Beefy something. And he's like, he's defined the, what golfers should be as well. The whole sort of. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, he's got like a big beard and he's a yeah. big lad. And he's like, I just and love he's like, golf. I'm me. Yeah, yeah. And, and I love what Deal I do. It. And it's kind of like a lot of women are like, you know, not just women, but men are drawn to that because mm, yeah. they kind of. think it's cool. They, they see that as like, I find the fact that he's so real attractive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, not trying absolutely. to be someone or something else. And that's what it is. And, you know, Fats was doing that, you know, back in, I mean, what was that? Early 50, 50, 51, was, 49? It was 49, yeah. 49, mm. yeah. I knew it was early. Um, very, very and, early. Uh, and, uh, and that's just, it's, it's amazing. You know, there's, there's, a, there's something... There's something in that lyric line that 
we all kind of respond and want within us you know it's kind of like i want these people to like me but for me rather than for me trying to be someone else and and that's what he's doing you know yeah absolutely absolutely uh, and yeah it's it's that sense of reality against um the romantic notions he's saying no i'm a real guy people love me look this is who i am and people flock to that they always have and they always will and he's the perfect example of um someone who was again organically not even actively he's using the medium to draw an audience in that sense because he's making that strong statement um but that was just a quick one for me boys i, I i'd like to move on to another song um which jay will be delighted that i'm, oh, I'm talking really about excited because i have no idea what you're gonna say and it could be anything i'm gonna say blue suede shoes <gasps> oh. obviously the elvis version right yeah yeah because he wrote it yeah he of course he did famously a writer yeah Famously. No, it was Jerry Lee Lewis who wrote this song. Can oh, we hear? Course, sorry. Stop <laughs> now. Uh, I think... I'm, you, you, you actually really annoy me now. <laughs> we should hear a little bit uh, of Blue Suede Shoes by the one and only Mr. Carl Perkins, please. One for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Now go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue Listening to that song makes me. I know As you know, you Carl Perkins that. is my ultimate hero. But that song... Do you know the funny thing about that song, Roy? What's that? I, I, I mean... I'm really nearly very done with you tonight, Mr. Phil Christopher. Hey, come on. Um, <laughs> the funny thing about that song, as a lot of us will know, is that it was written by Carl Perkins, but was made famous by Elvis. Of course. But even to this day, right? And this happened the other day at the gig, and I forgot to tell you guys... When we played that and I sung it, um, and we get to the chorus, there was a there was a girl who was kind of like maybe five or ten feet away from us, um, and uh, and she must have been I don't know twenty four, twenty five, something like that. She was you know pretty young, and um, and she sang every word to the chorus, and I thought to myself, I bet you any money, if I said to her, who is Carl Perkins? She wouldn't have a clue. No, that's true. And that's true. And it not only obviously frustrates me, but just amazes me at the like the whole point of this this specific podcast is about songwriting is that that just shows you how amazing and how influential and how how much of an impact this song has had on the world mm. is that that song will be so you know she might not even know that that was done by Elvis. 
Like, you yeah. know, yeah. there are people so that know that. Know yeah, she's 100% more likely to know that. But I know that there's people that know the song mm. that didn't even know Elvis sang it. They just know the song. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, and that's the thing. It's one of these songs that is kind of like, it's kind of like ingrained in us at birth, mm. you know. It's like something we've heard in the womb or or something we've heard like like growing up whilst we're in the cot, you know. It's this kind of, it's just one of these songs that, for me, I feel at some point, sooner or later, whether it was 100 years ago or 100 years in the future, would have been written. It is like, that song is an inevitable song that would have had an impact on the world as we know it and carl perkins wrote that and it's it's just it blows me away it blows me... the start of that song that i hadn't yeah. really thought about until right now one for the money and then obviously yeah. two for the show three to get ready now go 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 um so it's all about a girl that did step on his shoes or it's something about a friend that's of actually taken from a nursery rhyme if you could believe it oh really yeah oh, that's where that comes from on... No, the, the, as in one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go is an old say, what's English. What's this one for the money about? That's what I don't know. No, understand. it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Uh, yeah, like, and, uh, as Willie said, it's it's different. Like Carl changed it to Go Cat Go, and he actually changed it to Go Cat Go very very late on, uh, just to make it more kind of like within the scene. But the idea of the song uh, in regards to Blue Suede Shoes, and we hundred percent will be doing a podcast on Carl Perkins, and we'll go over this nah. again. Um, excuse me. <laughs> you are on a yeah, very, very yeah. thin tightrope, Mr. Like Christopher Weeks. Do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Horrible. Um, yeah. So the idea of that song was um, apparently it came from Johnny Cash. Oh, really? That Johnny Cash one night saw a couple arguing because this kid that was dancing in the audience had some new suede on uh, and he was having to go at his girlfriend because she was like dancing all over them. Right. But then there's other stories that say that. Um, Carl had seen it happen, and there's other stories saying that they both saw it happen. Like, so it's it's That's kind of again. and it's it's crazy yeah, because definitely. in in his biography, in Carl's biography, Go Cat Go, um, it does say that Carl saw it happen, but then there's interviews with Carl saying that Johnny saw it happen and told him. So right. you're never gonna know. It's one of these things, isn't it? But it could have been the, def- a combination of the two. Like he heard it from Cash and then he saw it happen. He was like, "I've got to write something about this." Yeah, it hundred percent could have been. It's it again. It's one of those things that to them was probably so bloody insignificant. Yeah. But yet to people like us, it means everything. Mm. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's and it's, it's stuck one of those with him things as well. That, yeah, exactly. You just kind of think he's probably been asked that question a thousand times, and he's like, "Do you know what? Why does this even matter?" Yeah, I've yeah. Just you know. But yet to us, it is like, yeah, we need it. We need to be fulfilled. But yeah, I just in songwriting i think that that song is one of those songs that in rock and roll was inevitably gonna be written and it was written by the best man to write it and it's just become it's just become infamous it's become as infamous uh, as infamous as rock around the clock or um you know johnny b Johnny B, yeah, yeah or yeah, you know, and, and and all these album. sorts of songs. It's 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 the it's in those top ten slash twenty rock and roll songs that everyone in the world knows. Oh yeah, and and it's just it's interesting that the introduction I think has superseded its source as well, because mm. I did, like Tomic, we were surprised when I said it was from a nursery rhyme. Yeah, I but just if you, I, d- I didn't really know what this money was yeah, about. But if you had sung, if you sung that, li- if you sung, well, it's one for the money to anyone. I bet they go two for the show. Do you know what I mean? 
And they do that because of this song, not because they know that it's uh, an, an, an old nursery rhyme, but it's a nursery rhyme that goes back years and years. You know what? I, I, I know when we're talking about it's songwriting, but, but uh, Carl Perkins, for some reason, had this thing about using nursery rhymes for songs. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's another song he wrote very early on when he was at Sun uh, that Sam produced uh, called All Mama's Children. Um, and I'll play a little bit now. Uh, but you'll see what I mean about the nursery rhyme aspect. I want to see if you guys can mm. kind of like figure it out. Was no woman had nails in the shoe, had so many children she didn't know what to do. They were doing all right till she took them to town. The kids on picking them up and putting them down. Now all your children won't rock, mama. All your children wants to roll. They want to roll. very first line there was an old woman that lived in a shoe mm-hmm. you know it goes to that whole story of the old woman that lived in the shoe you know yeah um with the children and stuff so uh, songwriting wise um it, it, it's one of those devices that obviously had worked last time and later on right. in that song uh carl does mention the blue suede shoes again he does that quite a lot in a few of his later songs because i think he realizes that blue suede was such a hit that he could kind of, yeah, you know, reference it, reference it not only to make the song popular in regards to like maybe that's a popular lyric, but also maybe a way of him sort of saying, "Hey guys, just to let you know, yeah, I'm the yeah, blue yeah. suede shoes guy." You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, there must be an well, element of that. Chuck did that with his um, famous guitar riff that he always started. Yeah, like a lot of tracks yeah. with you know that. Yeah, and 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 I think. You know, then the whole nursery rhyme thing was just a really, uh, a well, real... everyone knew them as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's that. Everyone knows them from birth. Um, and it's just um, there's that it's folk just tradition a... element to that as well. Everyone knows the nursery 100%. rhymes. Everyone knows the folk songs. It comes from the same world, like Ring a Ring of Roses and all that, uh, having roots way back, way back, way back, in with the plague and all that sort of thing. It's passing on information. People already recognise the structure. Rock and roll is all about having that recognisable structure and something else come out of it. Yeah, and I think the excitement is, as we've said throughout this podcast, it's that when you listen to, like, I don't know, if Queen or, I don't know, Prince or the Kooks turn around and said, we've got a new track for you, you have no idea what to expect. It could be and go anywhere. Like, it could be anything and go anywhere, right? But the thing with rock and roll is... There's this kind of comfort blanket in going, okay, it's rock and roll. I kind of know what's going to happen. It's going to start with this chord, go to this one. And, you know, there's that kind of similarity like with, with, with the rest of rock and roll. But the exciting thing about rock and roll is what are they going to do that's going to make it different? You know, they're going to have to yeah. really do something. Uh, as I said before, and I said this, you know, like an hour ago, they're going to have to do something timbre-wise, instrumentation-wise, technique-wise. Yeah. Like, just be inventive enough to make it different enough to pull me in and make that exciting for me. And that is what makes rock and roll so difficult and so clever to write with, yeah. is to be able to create something that's not not only been created before, but to create something so different that it pulls you in. And so that the whole one, four, five structure quarterly um, just becomes this kind of foundation for you to sit on comfortably yeah. and enjoy the beauty and the decoration that is created 
uh, from that artist, uh, you know, within that kind of realm of the song. I think you're right. And it, this this song is a lovely example of something coming out of that and being a response again to not 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 actively a response, but uh, just in the way that people like Carl Perkins thought and people of this younger generation thought the way that he describes what the person would do. Knock me down, step in my face, slander my name all over the case, uh, all over the place. Um, you could burn my house, steal my car, uh, drink my liquor from an old uh, what? Uh, Hey, wait, what's the line? Drink my liquor from fruit, an old fruit jar. Fruit and jar. B- b- before, sorry, Willie, but no, uh, no, I'm go just going to button. I do my weekly button, and this is my weekly button. But weekly button. Was, no, it's not happening. Um, I was actually talking to a friend only last week who sort of said, "I'm not really a fan of rock and roll," and I was like. You know, half of me was like, okay. How are you friends with this thing. person? Yeah, and yeah. the other half of me was like, who the bloody hell are you? Um, but the um, but I was like, okay, what are your reasons? And they say, well, the lyrics are just very blur and very blur. And I was like, what do you mean? And they said, well, there's just a lot of songs where the lyrics just seem to have just been put on. Like, th- there's nothing substantial. And I said, look, I, I will agree with you in in a certain way. But then you have to think of that with every single genre, whether it's um, whether it's early R&B, later R&B, garage, hip hop, jazz, pop, you know, indie, oh, yeah. wh- whatever. There are going to be the songs where that are just full of fluff and lyric that just fill the space that are just catchy and commercial that are just there to do the job that they're there to do. But there are a lot of songs that. And one of the songs that um that this friend said as a reference to say that um oh I just didn't really believe any of the lyrics was Blue Sway Shoes. Now you can imagine I was very taken aback by yeah, this. Yeah, I was going to say you um, probably just sat there and took it, did you? But yeah. I said to her, <laughs> you have to you have to really seriously look at the lyrics of that at the time. They may seem very simple, they may seem very basic, but every rock and roll song around that time. And we're not talking the late 50s. We're talking a lot earlier on than that. Was about having a car, being a teenager, being in love, all these sorts of things. Now, this song was one of the first songs to come out with the lyrics, well, you can burn my house, steal my car, drink my liquor from an old fruit jar. And in that verse itself, you're explaining to the listener about the quality of life you are living, which is that these people are so poor that you're drinking liquor out of an old fruit jar. It's moonshine. It's people that are living in the back, in the sticks that are creating... Like, it's, 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 you know, you have to think a lot more into these lyrics. They may seem basic. They may seem like they're used just to be, like, just to fit into place. But these lyrics, um, like, within Blue Sway Shoes, they're explaining about the life that Carl when he worked in these honky-tonks and with the people that worked around him with his brother um, and, and and these other bands at the time. But this is the life they were living. It wasn't mansions and money and cars and fans and all this kind of thing. When they started out, they were working their arse off, you know, hour after hour, night after night, for, like, hardly any money, just the love of the music. And they were, like, creating these songs and and things like drinking liquor from an old fruit jar and hey hold on a second do you really think that like carl perkins or elvis presley at a point in his career if he bought a brand new pair of blue suede shoes if an attractive girl came and stepped on his shoes in 1965 he was going to say hey don't step on my shoes he's going to say hey 
don't worry about that. I'll buy another 50 pairs. Back then, we're talking about a time where if you owned a pair of blue suede shoes, like, that was a treat, like an ultimate treat. You have saved up, you have worked, and you've bought yourself these shoes, and nothing matters in the world. Like, it may seem very simple, very basic that you're worrying about someone stepping on your shoes, but you're not wealthy enough or or kind of doing well enough to be able to say, don't worry about that. You know, these things are important to you. And, and, and it was like a style of living. And that's why that track was so popular at the time. It's because so many people could relate to that, that use of lyric, that lifestyle, that kind of, that kind of lack of wealth, that poverty in a sense of, you know, worrying about very important possessions or having to drink moonshine and things like that, you know, and that's the relationship you have to think. So in talking to this 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 person, I sort of said, you know, you have to look more into those lyrics. It's not just about the simplicity of them. It's about where they're coming from and the situation and the time that they're in. And I think that's what's important to look at, you know? That's Professor Osborne, I'd say. There uh, he is. Uh, not just a education, a put down as well. No, it's not a put down. It is, you know, it's it's all relevant to well, I can the see time. Their, I can see that. Yeah. Because, but, because I do that with songs. I do that with songs all the time. Yeah, yeah, I look yeah. at songs by certain people today and I'm like, oof, it's just fluff. It's rubbish. But then I can, I'm very happy for someone to say, no, actually, this is what this is about. And I go, okay. And after yeah, yeah, a bit yeah. of research and knowledge, I go, no, you're right. Actually, this this is more than what it looks like, you know? Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think it's... um worth mentioning that the you know the the, the the although the songs still have relevance today they aren't today and they have different meanings especially for you know especially this song with um Carl Perkins's blue suede shoes um but that that's sort of the joy of them as well you have to sort of like jump back into them into the world of you know you, you can't just I don't just listen to the music I listen to the, what's happening around the scene the the yeah you know you can visualize the the art the fashion the cars the everything everything has to come with it which is within the songs if you know what i mean which is the beauty of the songwriting is that they are um writing what's now and was not past and not future it's what's now which i this is what i really love about rock and roll particularly the songwriting of it it's not it's not yearning for the future or dwelling on the past it's uh, you know now that's yeah, what i find so fascinating about it and it's not um it's not anything um, you know, that's not within yourself. It, 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 as you're saying, Jay, it's 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 a very visceral, real world that he's talking about. Um, you can knock me down, spit in my face, slander my name all over the place, do anything that you want to do. I mean, if you think about the previous generation, I talk about it all the time. But the big difference is, when was Sinatra ever knocked down and have was was he spat on? Do you know what I mean? That's the most visceral real world thing in like in the yeah, world and that was what carl and his brothers leighton uh and uh his brother jay had to had to put up with in those tonks in those yeah. days you know they were they were having to put up with uh, you know getting into fight. i mean honestly if anyone gets the chance well we'll do a pod on and that. i'll say i'll say this time and time again and we'll do a podcast on it read his biography it, it's quite hard to get hold of but if you do uh, it's called Go Cat Go, but you'll read in there the the kind of life that they were brought up in. Um, it was very rural, very real, very kind of dirty and basic. Um, but they grew up in that lifestyle of if someone, you know, is giving you a bit of a funny look in a bar, 
you beat the crap out of yeah. them. Like that was just kind of the lifestyle. And you're right. You look at those lyrics. You know, it's like spit in your face. Like, <laughs> tell me one time where Sinatra or um, you know Judy Garland turned around and sang something about yeah. that. It's you know, it's people are relating back to um to, to real life in those sense. You know, a lot of people in those uh you know those less wealthy situations um are sort of looking at that and going, hold on a second, I've been through that. I've been there. I go through that every day. And they relate to that and they and because of that it, it it's just something that they feel that they can really connect to that songwriting with, you know? You're right. And that, that feeling of connection is uh connected in a funny sort of way to, to the last point I sort of want to make about the song um, which Jay I'm sure you'll already know but for our listeners uh, so we recorded the song on December 19th 1955 for our old friend Mr. Sam Phillips in two takes and uh, a quote from Carl himself says I, n- I had never played what I played in the studio that day I know God said I've held it back but this is it now you get down and get it and that's that same thing that we've mentioned a couple of times leaving that space for God to walk in the room. All of a sudden, whether you're religious or not, something happened to Carl in that moment when he was rocking and rolling and he laid down that guitar line and all of a sudden it was a completely different animal. I mean, it goes completely back to a few podcasts ago where you turned around and said, um, it's like rock and roll is this kind of religious thing, isn't yep. it? I'll like, say it again. I know that... Yeah, and 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 I know that myself. I'm talking for myself, and again, we have nothing against it or whatever. We we completely, you know, agree, and you know, we have friends that are religious and stuff like. None of us on this podcast, myself, Tomek, and Willie, um, are religious in any way. Um, but there's something religious about rock and roll that just brings out that that soul that kind of feel for you i mean i'm i'm squeezing my leg when i'm saying that because i'm so passionate about it um that people feel within the kind of hour of need it kind of slips in and helps you out and i and i felt that i felt that i felt that the gig the other day you know there are moments where you forget what key you're in and you go and there's a point where everyone stops and you have to finish the song and all of a sudden there's like this helping hand and, you know, you could call it muscle memory or you could call it concentration or whatever. But there's just something there, something something spiritual, something like holy-esque in a way that kind of like helps you fulfill that need of it. And that's what it is. Um, and, and, and funnily enough, that, that's what Carl felt within that session. And, but even after that session, Carl turned around to Sam and said, look, I don't really think I'm happy with that take. And Sam went, I don't want to hear of it. That's the one. Yeah. And Carl was like, oh, okay, if if you're sure. And Sam was like, I'm sure. And Carl was like, oh, I was really not very happy with my solo on that. It was the solo he wasn't happy with. Um, But again, Sam being Sam Phillips, no matter what he or who he turned out to be in later years, which we'll get to again in another podcast, um, he was right. And he had a number one that was beating Elvis Presley at the time. And... That again, Elvis Presley took on and made a fortune of, and Carl made a decent amount of money. Eventually, <laughs> again, another podcast. Um, but um, but that's what it is. There's just this, there's this thing, and I'm not saying that you, you only get this thing from rock and roll. 
because I know for a fact that there are artists and people that get it from every single style and genre and angle from across the world, from every time of life. But we are talking about rock and roll here. And and <laughs> and that's 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 where it comes from. And that's when it happens at those moments where you kind of need it to happen. And when it doesn't happen, you go, well, it didn't happen because it wasn't supposed to happen. Um, and then when it does, it does, you know, and that's that's that mysterious kind of songwriting kind of sixth sense, if you will, uh, which is just just amazing. It's amazing and it's beautiful and it's um, fascinating and mysterious and it's something that can never be you know never be found or or, or or answered and you know what i'm cool with that <laughs> yeah yeah i think that's fair i think that's fair um i think go on Tomek. lads before we uh move on to our fact of the week i was just going to uh sum up my version of rock and roll songwriting well, well, well. and that is rock and roll songs are written and people like them i'm angry with him I'm angry, angry with him because that was so loud. <laughs> Your poor neighbours. Um, should we wrap wrap this up? I, th- really I think we might have to. You know, I think I we just might did. have. I to. just did. Oh, is Probably. that it? Is it? Are we done? We, no, it's in what I just said. People like them, right? Yeah, people did like. I them. like how vague that yeah, is as well. Right. Just, just people, just people like them. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. You were right, uh, boys. Before we do move on to uh, our our next section segment of the pod can we just give our our lovely traditional phrase our traditional summary in a short sentence just a few words just a couple of little thoughts what what is it what is the difference in rock and roll songwriting to the rest of of songwriting what was it what what made the difference um how did it change the music world what do you feel about it Shall oh, I come I to the great man himself? He's ready. Look, oh, I think it's Tom about collabor- collabor- Yeah, no, so I think it's a, don't you dare. I think it's about collaboration, <laughs> actually, um, in the sense of, from my research, the people that wrote down the dots or wrote a tune, it was it was only the one step towards getting a good, good rock and roll tune out there. It had to come from the artist. It had to come from the thing that they had. Um, but yeah, it, you can't just and we I know we've said before you can't just write this you can't write down rock and roll and and even in the sense of I've written down a song you really can't. Um, some of the songs you guys have written, you know, it's come alive in the room when we've all put a little bit on it. Um, for me, it's all about um, collaboration. All about collaboration from Tom Savinsky there. Very nice. That makes me think of all around my hat. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, what do you reckon? I mean, I said it earlier, and I said it several times since, and I'll say it again. I believe um, that I believe um, that you believe that you believe that (laughs) I believe. I believe (laughs) that the majority of songwriting is about having a developed skeleton that then that is that is very complex and very. Um, very uh, kind of like dense within its early stages, and and that that and 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 there's no need for kind of 
more progression on that. But I but I feel with rock and roll, or at least when it first started, it was at least one of the first genres that had a very basic skeleton that just gave artists and performers the ability to be able to like hang stuff off of, you know, to decorate, to be able to take the basic form of something and say, I'm going to express who I am by using these three chords and and do that. You know, I don't necessarily need to know that there's a specific key change or or chordal minor change in this next section uh, for the song to be able to flow. I just know that we're going to go A, D, E and and that everything else I do just is and becomes and the thing that creates the excitement and the intrigue and the fascination is the way that I play guitar I hit the keys I smash the drums I sing the lyrics and what that lyrical content is and 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 how I execute it in every single possible way that for me is what differs rock and roll to any other song you know it's taking a standard form and decorating it in such a way that makes it individual and personal but also organic and natural. That, for me, is the difference between rock and roll and any other songwriting technique. Very nice indeed. And for me... Chris, yes, please, for you, sorry. It's the difference... It's about the reality. It's, like you say, Jay, it's about the self-expression. It's about leading with the heart rather than with the head. Whether that means very that good, you, very you good. End up I mean, what you've done is there is you've summarized every single thing that I've said within the last two hours and put it into <laughs> one sentence. Yeah, well, it's 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 whether it comes out in the Chuck Berry manner where it's it's incredibly clever writing, but it's not really intellectually thought out. It still comes from the heart, or whether it's the Carl Perkins talking about his life and and pulling no punches and saying this is how it is this is this is reality at the end of the day it comes from the heart and for me that's the biggest shift in songwriting and i think that really does come with the the rise of the singer songwriter because people do obviously put their own stamp on songs that have been written for them but i feel like it comes so much more organically and naturally for when you've written your own song because you're completely in control of everything yeah i think it's i think it's very easy to look at the 10 years plus of rock and roll and say okay let's take 12 bar blues or generic rock and roll form and uh write another song about it and say actually no let's put this chord in and this middle bit and stuff and that's fine i think that's clever i think that's genius and i think that's great but i also think it's just as difficult if not more difficult to take that standard form and try and do something more with it that yeah. hasn't been done before. And that's the trick to rock and roll. And that's the thing I know that we as songwriters have sat down and worked hours and days and weeks over to try and do something that doesn't sound like Chuck Berry, that doesn't sound like Jerry Lee Lewis, that doesn't sound like uh, Carl Perkins or Little Richard or Elvis Presley or any of these other names, big names, small names, whatever. It's who can we be? without being someone else and and that's that's the hard job of it that that's for me is what rock and roll is 
it's that thing that I said five hours ago when we started this podcast. <laughs> Repetition without tedium is the backbone of rock and roll. Because it's very, the very same good. and it's completely different at the same time. Boys, hop aboard. Let's get on that mystery train. Yes, it's that point in the show where we all sit down and try and find some facts about the subject we're discussing and share them with each other. And hopefully they are not the same facts. <laughs> Thankfully, we haven't actually had any crossovers yet, have we? We've not. No, we've um, been lucky. We've been very lucky. And uh, we read the facts and then we have a chat about them and we then pick the best facts of the week. Yes. And currently uh, the scores oh, are... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. Jay Osborne and Christopher, Mr. Histopher, Sisterfer Willie Weeks. Sisterfer uh, Willie Weeks. With, I believe, two points each. Yeah. Hey, that's great. I'm really pleased um, with that. Very it's good. A, it's a marathon. Um, Mr. Squashy no, mate, I'm in Joshy. The lead, it, yeah, very true. Uh, Mr. Squashy Joshy Haberfield, who was our guest on the uh, previous uh, History of the Drums podcast mm -hmm. with one point. And uh, as most of you will already know, Tomek Savinsky with none. So it's a, shame. Uh, a real shame. A real this is shame. your week, mate. You I, can I can feel I, it. I can feel it. This is your well. week. Um, so we always start with the winner of the previous week, which no, it wasn't me. Um, it was, was actually Mr. For Christopher Willie Weeks. <gasps> so if you would like to start with your um, mystery train fact of the week, uh, and uh, then we'll go from there. So please take it away. I would be delighted to start with my mystery train fact of the week. So we've been talking about songwriting. Uh, we must also talk about the... Uh, lifting of songs from other people we've touched on it briefly uh and the idea of taking little bits and pieces and stuff like that i want to talk about one specific example with one specific song a little song which was written by a band from liverpool called the beatles it's called come together now this is a lennon and mccartney song of course however this song is uh not based on but it lifts quite a few elements from a chuck berry song called You Can't Catch Me, uh, including the opening line, which is pretty much exactly the same, which is, uh, here come a flat top. Sounds very familiar. You probably know it from Come Together more than You Can't Catch Me. Now, Chuck, as we know, is a shrewd, shrewd gentleman. And so, of course, uh, Morris Levy, who was his publisher, the publisher of the song, brought a lawsuit against Lennon and McCartney. And the wonderful outcome is, uh, or was rather, the wonderful outcome was that Come Together remains uh, a Lennon and McCartney song. Of course, Chuck is nowhere near it. But John Lennon was required to record three Chuck Berry songs. And as a result, he took all the publishing royalty payments. No. Yep. It's wow. just genius. He doesn't get one payout. He gets the payout for three songs. What songs were they? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But that anything. On how did recorded I not know by Lennon. that? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that shrewd? Isn't but that shrewd? Instead of a single payout, <sighs> royalties is what he gets. Come on, that is that's amazing. I would say I that's, that's unbelievable. But we know, yeah, that's Chuck. That is and Chuck all over. That is I talk about turning that's... the situation to your advantage. <sighs> what I mean, that's just brilliant, isn't it? 
I mean, the thing is, you have to look at the the amount of royalties and profit that they had probably got from Come Together compared to the amount that Chuck got. It's it's going to be tenfold so, anyway. But if the but Beatles still, are covering their songs, are covering a Chuck Berry songs, yeah, it's yeah, big money. You're right. It would be very interesting if you can, Willie Weeks, try and find out who, uh, what songs they are, I will. and we could bring them up on the next podcast. Because I absolutely will. I am. I have never heard of that, and yeah, I am I've... very. Yeah, well done. Hey, thanks, Tommy. That means a lot. Um, and uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm just really interested to find out what those songs are. But that is a that is a great fact, brilliant fact. Hey, um, thanks, bruh. Very good. Uh, so we'll move on to uh, probably one of the most important people in my life's lives, lives. life, lives. Um, it wasn't buzz, it was which is lives. none other than Mister Jay Osborne. So it's my fact. Um, so what I'm going to say is this fact here, in fact, is also um, a Chuck fact, funnily enough, and it's a fact that I didn't really know. Um, and I read this the other day and I thought, oh my God. Uh, Tomek, stop reading it. Whoa. Naughty boy. Oh, we did. So this this is the um this is the fact. I'm gonna have to try and angle the mic the right way. Please. Um so I can read it properly. So the opening guitar riff of Johnny B. Good is essentially a note for note copy of the opening single note solo of Louis Jordan's Ain't That Just Like a Woman from 1946. Well, well, well. And I'm going to really? play it for you now. You because have it, to play it. It blew me the frig away. So I am going to play Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. This is Johnny Be Good, the beginning by Chuck Berry. Okay, we all know that. We all know that a million, hundred, billion percent, if that's a term. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's say and, yeah. And this is Ain't That Just Like a Woman by Lewis Jordan from 1946. Have a listen. It's the same. Unbelievable. I I didn't know how to take that. Um, the only difference with that for me was um, that that song uh, by Louis Jordan carries on on the one rather than going to the four. Yeah. So Chuck Berry's is... And to the four... Whereas Louis Jordan's is... One. It stays on the one. Right. Um, but I had never heard that. No, I didn't know that. No. I, thought, I just thought it was Chuck's thing. Yeah. I thought he just had yeah. that riff. Yeah, no, I, was of I thought exactly the same. Um, which was making me giggle throughout the whole of the podcast. Every time you guys said that, I was like, "Oh, I can't wait to talk about that." <laughs> um, but it really, really threw me because then it takes us back to that whole question of when was the first rock and roll song? Because that was forty six. Yeah, isn't that amazing? So, um. But as as well as it being very short and sweet, that is my fact. Nice, I like that. Very, uh, very so, nice. Um, unfortunately, we'll move on to Mr. Tomek Savinsky now with his. Has Tomek not been? No, unfortunately no. not. 
It's, oh, it's going to get pretty weird here, guys. Okay. We're well, doing this all about songwriters. And I was doing we, some yeah, we were, yeah. On, uh, <laughs> on, on Spectre. I was doing some research on him. And, Spectre. Uh, Phil, Phil Spectre. Phil Spectre, yeah. Oh, yes. The very lovely man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lovable And rogue. obviously wrote, wrote a few tunes for Tina Turner. Lovable rogue? <laughs> Can I stop yeah. you there? Yeah. Sorry, sorry, we, sorry. Um, and this is <laughs> so stupid. Okay. Music by Tina Turner is used at Gloucestershire UK airport to scare birds away from the runway. <laughs> <laughs> How dumb is that? Um, apparently quite a problem on the, <laughs> on the runway. Um, I didn't even know they had an airport. No, apparently they do. It's a council-run airport. <laughs> it's a council-run airport. One, hilarious. The district um, council It's airport. nothing about songwriting, but I just thought, I mean, this is hilarious. I have to, there's no other podcast I'm going to ever be able to mention this on. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the there's quite a lot of birds in the on the area. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, they use speakers to, at the top of the vehicle. They used to drive around the airport to play bird distress calls. Um Apparently there was a guy as well that tried to various <laughs> versions of distressing the birds. He had like loads of like bin bags to sort of <laughs> get rid of the birds. Um, quite a lot, quite a lot of birds actually. Uh, yeah, blasting out Turner's hits at high volume from a van that drives around the grounds. Is what I've got here this is from the Independent. Yeah, this is in 2012. Uh, this this made the news, but apparently. Um, Gulls and crows um, are their biggest problem, with around 20,000 gulls moving through the Seven Valley. No one cares. I know. It's just, it's just joyous, though, isn't it? Tina Turner, I just feel like you're, you're trying to torpedo the whole thing because you you know you're not going to win, so you're like, well, I'm going to drag yeah. it down then. Yeah, exactly. That's what well, I'm you're, doing not, you're not going to win now. Well, I know. It's I just thought it was funny. Podcast. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Right, I'm livid with him. Let's take a step back, right? <laughs> Oh, my face hurts. I laugh so much. Oh my god, Willie Weeks, who is your, who is your pick of the week, please? Quarantine Center. You'll be on. surprised. It's Tomek. It's not Tomek. It's you, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody birds! I Unbelievable. Thought was, I thought that was brilliant. That's true. Rock and roll. That is. <sighs> what you? The birds are rock and roll. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, sitting on the runway. Tina Turner. Just ah, go on. Then we'll bugger off. I don't think you got that, that Willie. The I'm birds, the band, the birds. Yeah, the birds. Right. The Pixar short as well. That would have been <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Okay. Right, so uh, Mr. For Christopher Willie Weeks picks me. Yes, I do, I, obviously. <clears throat> I have the same problem <laughs> that Willie Weeks had last time. I'm just... You just and, did you know my fact? And no, I didn't. I right, didn't. Okay. Um, <laughs> I have the same problem that uh, Willie had last time, yeah, and that Squash had the time before, right? Which is that I would have picked your fact, mm. but the issue is it has nothing to do with rock <laughs> know, and roll. I know. I just thought I have to say it. There's no other time I'm going to be able to say that. Just say it in conversation. No, it has to. This be isn't the only time we speak. <laughs> it has to be for the public. It's living. Um, so I'm gonna go with um, Mr. For Christopher Willy Weeks. Hey, thanks. So, uh, I'm surprised. Tomek Sivinsky. Who are you going for? I just uh, I've ruined this whole segment. <laughs> it was my yeah. suggestion. This whole segment was mine. 
<laughs> and I ruined it. But um, I'm going with Chris Weeks. <gasps> wow. Mr. Christopher Willie Weeks. I didn't know that. And I thought That's I was... amazing. Boys, yeah. I can sweeten the deal because you have voted for me just before we... <laughs> oh, please do. I, I've, l- I've just found out a tiny little bit more. Um, so we were talking about Come Together, of course. And uh, yeah, Lennon was sued by Morris Levy and he agreed to record at least three songs on his next release. Um, Chuck songs or ones owned by the label. Uh, and he was started recording them with Phil Spector. Interestingly enough, that sounds relevant, doesn't it, Tomek? But yeah. the um, the project was birds. shelved. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> the project was shelved because they didn't get on. Shocker. Uh, and Len- John Lennon gave uh, Levy, Morris Levy, a rough tape of the album. And then Morris Levy released the album oh. as it was called Roots. John Lennon sings the great rock and roll hits. And it was a mail order LP and it had You Can't Catch Me and Sweet Little Sixteen and a couple of others as well. And then John Lennon was like, what on earth are you doing? And him and Capital threatened to sue. And so it was quickly withdrawn again. But there are copies of this album, this incredibly rough John Lennon singing Chuck Berry uh, songs album out there, which was this back and forth battle between the two of them. I think it's awesome. Imagine how much they cost mm. oh my god how many can there be i mean there could surely there could only be a few hundred it could be twenty thousand yeah. golds worth couldn't there you know what yeah twenty thousand golds worth yeah as like, in the bird yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just unbelievable shoehorning this in are you sure i haven't won i just want to let everyone know uh that tomic won't be appearing on the next <laughs> A podcast episode of Straight Out the Fridge. I honestly um, don't think he should. He should be punished. I'm going to be blaring music on Gloucestershire Airport. He's, he's got a new job as a driver on the airport runway of Gloucestershire Airport. Um, so uh, that does leave uh, Mr. For Christopher Willie Weeks in the lead <gasps> with three points. Uh, myself with two, uh, Squash Jabberfield with one, and Mr. Tomek Seagull Savinsky. <laughs> That's not a bad. That's, my That's actually pretty good. Because yeah, um, then I solo I with go. one point, uh, and uh, no, that... I don't have any points, mate. Oh, you have none. None. Yeah. Did I say one? Yeah. Because oh, sorry, I just because winning's sorry. for nerds. Okay. <laughs> um, and that leaves him with no points. Uh, but that leaves. Uh, there's no more to say than to hand over to uh, Mr. For Christopher. Hold on, what we do next week? Oh, None sorry. of your business, mate. Well, You're I'm not picking. on this podcast anymore. You're gum. <laughs> so, um, obviously, this week uh, was Topic Week, which was uh, the history Delicious. of songwriting in rock and roll. Uh, Mr. For Christopher Willie Weeks pick, uh, which means that next week uh, is going to be my pick. No, it's not. I'm not <coughs> having this. I'm shoehorning this in. I'm going to gull you. Okay. Oh, shoehorn. Oh, that's not a term. Yeah. Um, no, unfortunately, that is right. It is Tomek's pick next week, and it's Artist Ooh. Week, and he is going to pick none other than... Well, I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. It's Buddy Holly. <gasps> Who? The one, the only, Mr. Buddy Holly. Buddy right. Bolly. That's right. Bloody shoddy. So, that's very good, and I'm, I'm hoping... I didn't know that. I'm instantly excited. Yeah, uh, we're going to have a very exciting interview next week, um, but we shall have to wait and see... Uh, but apart from that, there is nothing more uh, to do rather than to turn around to Mr. For Christopher Willie Weeks for the handoff. Gentlemen, 
thank you so much for being with me, except for Tommy. Thank you so much for being with me this evening. <laughs> it's been absolutely fascinating and a real nerd and geek out for me, which is, is a really nice thing. Thanks to our wonderful listeners for uh, staying with us as well. I know this has been a long one, but we really appreciate you staying with us. Hopefully you've listened to it in segments. That's how I like to do it, in chunks, you know. Bite-sized chunks, if you remember that from the BBC. Anyway, uh, as Jay <laughs> says, tune in next time for a very exciting podcast about the one and only Buddy Holly. My God. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, if you're listening to us on Spotify, on Anchor, wherever you get your podcasts from, we are there. So please do hit subscribe and please do leave us a little comment, a little review, anything like that. It makes all the difference in the world. We've said it from the very beginning. We'll carry on saying it. Rock and roll is about community and we want it to be about more than just us three yammering on hour after hour. We want to hear your voices, know what you're thinking out there. So please do let us know. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all the social media platforms. Jay, what are the addresses? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, Willie, um, Instagram is Straight Out The Fridge Podcast. Um, or you can check us out on Twitter at Straight Out The. Again, we still don't have the person who took Straight Out The Fridge. So it's just Damn Straight them. Out The. Um, and uh, for Facebook, just go on to Facebook and type in Straight Out The Fridge into the search bar and you will find us. Absolutely right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for being with us. And uh, I will say that my name has been and probably will be for some time, Mr. Sisterfer Christopher Weeks. And I've been joined by... Jay Osborne. And not to mention... Tomek Seagull Savinsky. <laughs> that cannot stick. And together we are straight out the fridge. Thank you so much. I'm going to leave you with one of my favourite lyrics from our old friend Mr Chuck Berry. They had a hi-fi phono. Boy, did they let it blast. 700 little records, all rock, rhythm and jazz. But when the sun went down, the rapid tempo of the music fell. C'est la vie, said the old folks. Just goes to show... You never can tell. Mm -hmm.